This is Unfilter, episode 185 for April 27th, 2016. And new tonight, an intriguing report from CBS's 60 Minutes. What don't we know about 9-11? At least 28 pages worth. There is a fight underway right now to declassify a document that those who've seen it say would reveal a 9-11 connection to Saudi Arabia. One of those people is a former Florida senator and governor. Here's part of what he told Steve Croft tonight. I think it is implausible to believe that 19 people, most of whom didn't speak English, most of whom had never been in the United States before, many of whom didn't have a high school education, uh, could have carried out such a complicated task without some support from within the United States. off a trip at Linux Fest Northwest. Welcome again to Unfiltered Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show about the news you shouldn't be watching. My name is Jason. I'm proud to announce on this episode that my running mate for this election is Wait, what's your name? Chris Fisher! I'm Chase. Oh boy, I am super honored and excited to be here for episode 185. Uh, Screw Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Chris, uh, this just in here in the Jupiter Broadcasting Newsroom. Uh, (laughs) We are mathematically eliminated from... From actually <laughs> Damn it. winning. You know, it doesn't seem to be stopping anybody else. Mm. Yeah, we have a big show this week. Of course, yes, we're going to talk about the 2016 yes. election. Oh. Yeah, of course, we're going to be talking about that. We'll be talking about all kinds of things coming up on this week's episode. We do have a cyber update right off the top. Uh, those 28 pages you've probably heard about from the 9 Elition. 9 Elition? Commission report. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> those 28 pages that uh, might just be pointing to Saudi Arabia. And even if we don't come out and say it, Saudi Arabia is basically saying it in their response. Russia has got something up their sleeve. Then we'll give you, like I said, a 2016 update from the right and the left, and then we'll end it all on a high note. On a high note. Chase, you got it. You ready to start in the cyber section I, of the you show? Know, you know, Chris, I always like the cyber. Yeah, I know show. you do, buddy. You always every have. Sh- every show. Every single show. Every show and the I FBI like the cyber. likes the cyber, too. They do. And, they love you know, their cyber. You know, you know, last time we were on the air, the narrative was the FBI hired this company, uh, Celebrate, to hack the iPhone. If that turns out um, not actually to be the case. Oh? That just might have been a media scam by Celebrate. Uh, it was a much more conventional, less juicy way. For oh. our national lead today, a stunning admission this morning by the FBI. The feds paid private hackers to access critical data. Yeah, over a million dollars. Over a million dollars. Setting the peg right there. The price of iPhone exploits at a million bucks. Thanks. Here you go, they definitely market. didn't go to Fiverr on that one. From the iPhone of Syed Rizwan Farouk, one of the two San Bernardino terrorists. Now, Apple, as you may recall, had refused to build software that would have enabled law enforcement to crack the device's privacy code. This created a pitched battle between the technology giant and the federal government. Let's get right to CNN Justice reporter Evan Perez. Evan, how did the feds hire these hackers? Well, uh, Jake, these are hackers who uncovered a vulnerability in the iPhone, and the FBI paid them for the tool to crack the terrorist uh, iPhone. And now, even though we don't, this one fight is over for now, the, the solution really only works with one limited model of iPhone. Oh. So the FBI director, Jim Comey, says that the government is probably going to be tangling with Apple over other phones, and here's how he describes the coming issues. I think there may be one in Massachusetts, maybe one in New York, but there will be plenty uh, because the nature of things is that this, the, the default encryption on devices 
is affecting all of our lives and all of our devices. And so by definition, it's going to affect the work of law enforcement in a pretty significant way. So, Jake, Comey says that he trusts the company or the, or the people he oh, hired okay. to do this, uh, this hacking. So as long as he uh, trusts he says, so people should not right. be worried that this is a tool that's going to be in the hands of the wrong people. Look, I mean, sure, we're setting the black market price at a million bucks and it's going to cause a, uh, well, a arms race in the market. But uh, you shouldn't worry. Look at Jake's face on that, too. Like, are you sure you sure about that? Be used for, 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 uh, for malicious purposes. Is the FBI going to tell Apple how the hackers access the phone? That's the crux of the issue. The, the government policy is that the FBI, when they uncover a vulnerability, is supposed to tell a technology company so that they can fix it. However, there's a, there's a way for them to keep that from these companies. And, and Comey himself says, the minute we tell Apple, they're going to fix it and yeah. then we'll be back to square one. Because yeah. this is a national security uh. issue. They don't have to tell them. Oh, interesting. Evan Perez, thank you. You sir. know, it's a national security issue, Chase. No, we don't say anything. No, we don't got to say nothing. Now, what do you think? Apple, of course, iOS 10, it's, it's going to be more of the, more of. Uh, oh, mar- it's going to lock it down even more. A, st- a steady march, right? And, you know, of course, they're also going to screw the. Uh, uh, but there's, always, honestly, Chris, there's always been a race, though, when it comes to cracking the iPhone yeah. and jailbreaking. But don't it. you think this is going to screw the jailbreaking community even more now? Actually, you might see a couple of factions. Of, of course, you'll see the faction that will want it for the highest price, right? But you also will see a faction of like, no, nah, we want to make this stuff free. <laughs> Screw everybody else. You'll have those fights, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, either way, it feels like an arms race is happening in the gray market now. Uh, and all of this, all of this, of course, is been really sort of sparked by the Snowden leaks. I mean, Apple stepped up their security, really, yeah. I think, as a response to consumer interest here. And uh, no, it feels like looking back at the Snowden leaks, you know, it's almost been three damn years. Almost three years since the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden leaked evidence of the extent of the government's surveillance apparatus. The calls for reform continue. And in the wake of terror attacks in Paris, Beirut and Brussels, questions abound over whether or not the mass data collection from surveillance is actually keeping us safe. RT's Manuel Rapolo explains. According to one former NSA officer turned whistleblower, William Binney. Love that guy. The very size of America's surveillance programs are making intelligence gathering more difficult and possibly even hampering national security efforts in thwarting terror events. This is a point we've made on this show a lot. Yeah. Now, you might have heard of this type of data collection being compared to a haystack, and for all intents and purposes, this is a pretty good analogy. The argument for the data collection is that for an intelligence officer wanting to get their hands on a lead, they could just simply run a word search or a phrase search, and with any luck, find what they're looking for. But in reality, that same search would lead that same intelligence officer into an over-engorged pile of data, telephone communications, emails, text messages, voice messages, all of which pertain to somewhere around 4 billion people who are all being monitored by the U.S. and its surveillance partners, like Canada, the U.K., and Australia. According to Binney, there's simply too much information to sift through. At a recent event in New York City, the former intelligence officer added that quote, That's why they couldn't stop the Boston bombing or the Paris shootings, because the data was all there. The NSA is great at going back over it forensically for years. I feel like we need to do this every time there's a terrorist attack. Anytime there's like like the Paris shooting or anything. Where was the NSA data? To see what they were doing before that. But that doesn't stop it. Last year, I met with Bill Binney at a whistleblower event on Capitol Hill where we talked about the efforts to, re- to reform surveillance practices by the U.S. government. But he says that it'll take a drastic change in the culture of Washington. 
fact, they're making their own laws. That's part of the problem. They think that these agencies can do their own thing, like make their own laws and administer them any way they want and, and do it without uh, the appreciate or the, without the approval of the electorate, the people of the country. You know, uh, uh, and so and as long as they keep trying to operate that way, uh, thinking they're above the law and also above the uh, uh, Constitution, that we're going to have a messed up government. I mean, until that gets straightened out, and I think whistleblowers played an integral part in uh-huh. at least starting mm-hmm. to understand what those issues really are. I completely agree, and I'm glad he was one of them. Uh, so it's just I, I still can't get over it. You know, I look back at all of the all of the things revealed by Edward Snowden, and I, I still just I can't get over it. It seems uh, it seems like it really nothing has changed. Uh, big picture, and uh, I don't know, Chase. Looking at it, do you feel like I guess we have more secure messaging apps now? I mean, right. <laughs> I guess we have Apple turning on encryption by default. Yeah, and that's where obviously they did their test case, right? You know, trying to get the crack, if you will, and I and I call it a test case, and. Obviously, they I think that's failed. probably accurate. Yeah, and because I, I believe they always had the ability to go outside the realm, uh, but they they felt that you know it was during a political cycle they had a chance to uh, you know uh, don't waste uh, a disaster, right? And so they they took these you know San Bernardino shootings. They figured, all right, this is our moment. This is kind of like our our, our our time to take this. Why situation. wasn't the question asked? Where was the NSA data collection? If they're communicating with terrorists. Where is the NSA data collection? Where? Why wasn't that question asked? Well, NSA, they can't spy in the U.S., right? Well, that's what they say. Right. Well, that's why that question was probably never asked. I wonder. So, uh, anyways, I just, I just yeah. like to reflect on the whole Snowden leaks. Can you believe it? Three years, Chase. Yeah. <laughs> Almost three years. Well, that, back to what? Episode 55? Four, 54? Something like that, which is really remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and in that... 185 run of the show. <laughs> uh, one topic nice we almost never really discuss. 9-11. Right. I mean, you hear politicians mention it all the freaking oh, time. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, yeah. We often that's will, why I ding it every time you hear we it. We often will just ding it whenever we hear a politician dropping it. Uh, of course, Trump mentioned 7-11. I'll play that clip in the overtime. I could go for a slurpee. Yeah, I think, I think Trump was a little thirsty, too. Uh, uh, so... Have you are you familiar before we get into this? Do you, do you, are you familiar with the fact that there are there was the 9/11 commission report that was put out as an audio book and like a book book and it was right. put out all yep. Yep. Do you remember the fact that there were pages that were held classified? Does that stand out to you as part of it, you know, I I think it did uh, maybe a year or two ago. I honestly kind of yeah. vaguely remember that. I actually yeah, so now it's it's sort of recently popped into the mainstream mindset these 28 pages yeah the, and they've even been called the saudi papers and we're going to dig into a little bit of what this is what's going on and why we're hearing about these all of a sudden after like 13 and years. new tonight an intriguing report from cbs's 60 minutes what don't we know about 9 11 at least 28 pages worth there is a fight underway right now to declassify a document that those who've seen it say would reveal a 9 11 connection to saudi arabia <laughs> one of those people is a former florida senator and governor here's part of what he told Steve Croft tonight. So you heard this part in the intro, and yes. I, I want to play the rest of this so you know what happened after our intro hit. I think it is implausible to believe that 19 people, most of whom didn't speak English, most of whom had never been in the United States before, many of whom didn't have a high school education, uh, could have carried out such a complicated task without some support from within the United States. And you believe that 
the 28 pages are crucial to this. I think they are a key part. Former U.S. Senator Bob Graham has been trying to get the 28 pages released since the day they were classified back in 2003, when he played a major role in the first government investigation into 9-11. I remain deeply disturbed by the amount of material that has been censored. With so much, so many things with 9-11, uh, sorry, right, uh, <laughs> at the time, uh, there was coverage of it. There was actually significant coverage of it, but there hasn't been much discussion of it since. Government investigation into 9-11. I remain deeply disturbed by the amount of material that has been censored from this report. At the time, Graham was chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. I call the Joint Inquiry Committee to order and co-chair of the bipartisan Joint Congressional Inquiry into intelligence failures surrounding the attacks. The Joint Inquiry reviewed a half a million documents, interviewed hundreds of witnesses, and produced an 838-page report, minus the final chapter, which was blanked out, excised by the Bush administration for reasons of national security. Bob Graham went on to say he believes government officials and private Saudi citizens helped the hijackers. Families of 9-11 victims are suing the Saudi government for their alleged involvement. We tweeted out the full... Did you know that bin Laden was a Saudi? Did you were you aware of that? Did you know that uh, during nine eleven all planes were land were uh, grounded? Oh yeah, I knew about that. Except for yeah. the plane carrying the Bin Laden family that the Bush administration coordinated That's, specifically yeah, to I remember leave. that. Yeah, yeah. You do, I remember that too. Uh, so of course the Saudis have to respond to this report. They can't take the sixty minutes report standing still. Saudi Arabia this morning is rejecting a sixty minutes report about a classified document that may prove a Saudi link to the nine eleven hijackers. The explosive allegations are contained in a secret section of a report on the terror attacks known as the 28 Pages. Saudi Arabia says in a statement, quote, the CBS 60 Minutes program was a compilation of myths and erroneous charges that have been thoroughly addressed, not just by the Saudi government, but also by the 9-11 Commission and the U.S. courts. Myths. Myths. Huh. Did you, uh, Chase, yeah. did you know that uh, one of the hijackers that slammed the airplane, one of the hijackers that was trained in a Cessna that then transferred that Cessna knowledge into a jet airliner and then flew the jet airliner into a tiny building well from the air they flew into a tiny building they smashed into a building did you know that uh, he was issued some papers that allowed him to fly by can you guess which embassy Hmm, the United States embassy? You would think maybe, sure nope, nope uh, Saudi Arabia's embassy really? yeah, yeah hmm. he got uh, yeah his pilot license Saudi Arabia embassy. Wow. Weird. But former members of Congress who have read the document told Steve Croft on last night's 60 Minutes the 28 pages point to a possible Saudi link. They want the Obama administration to declassify the report. So this is your office? Bob Graham won't discuss the classified information in the 28 pages. We are uh, sitting at a point on April 27, 2016, where CBS News is openly discussing the fact that potentially members of a foreign government colluded to finance and empower the attackers of 9-11. And it's not a conspiracy. If you had said something about this, you would be a truther, right? Right. You you would be a 9-11 conspiracy nut. You would be somebody who was completely, totally a candidate for foil on the top of your head. Exactly. People would like unfriend you on Facebook. It is a huge shift for the mainstream media to be discussing this, and we're going to talk about why in a moment. He will say only that they outline a network of people that he believes supported the hijackers while they were in the U.S. 
You believe that support came from Saudi Arabia? Substantially. And when we say the Saudis, you mean the government, rich people in the country, charities? All of the above. Graham and others believe the Saudi role has been soft-pedaled to protect a delicate relationship with a complicated kingdom where the rulers, royalty, riches, and religion are all deeply intertwined in its institutions. The committee will be in order. Porter Goss, who was Graham's Republican co-chairman on the House side of the joint inquiry, and later director of the CIA, also felt strongly that an uncensored version of the 28 pages should be included in the final report. The two men made their case to the FBI and its then-director, Robert Mueller, in a face-to-face meeting. They pushed back very hard on the 28 pages, and they said, no, that cannot be uh, unclassified at this time. Did you happen to ask the FBI director why it was classified? We did in a general way, and the answer was because we said so, and it needs to be classified. Mm. 60 Minutes reports the White House is reviewing whether to declassify the 28 pages. The president will travel to Saudi Arabia later this month. So Obama's going to Saudi Arabia and deciding whether they're going to declassify the 28 pages, the Saudi papers. Now, could this be perhaps a little bit of leverage? And, you know, if you think about it, the Saudis have been pretty pissed at us for a while and we've needed a way to reel them in especially with their shenanigans in Yemen and, of course, our involvement in our efforts with Syria. We oh, needed, yeah. we needed I was just going to mention of, Syria, yeah. We need a I, Trump card. And, of course, the Saudis wait, have been pissed at us wait, for— what kind of card? I said a Trump card. All right. A schism that grew to rupture with the U.S.-Iranian nuclear deal. So this uh, CNN audio report uh, that I captured from CNN radio uh, basically says that the Saudis have been pissed— and like major overdrive mode for a while with the Obama administration over a lot of things. But now with the Iran nuke deal, yeah, they're super pissed. And it's starting to sound like this might be – and think about the Saudis, their involvement with oil production, how closely that's linked yeah. Oh, yeah. to our economy. Think about their involvement in the Middle East and how much we depend on them to push things in our direction. And think about the fact that how much leverage we could have if we had these 28 pages that we could – any time we need them to behave. We just pull it out. The Saudis were furious. They believe that Barack Obama has sold them at the altar of his own rapprochement with Iran, their arch enemy. In response to all this, Saudi Arabia has ramped up its armed forces, overtaking Russia to become the world's third largest defense and security spender. And where are they getting that from? Where are they getting those defense weapons from, right? Yeah, right. And last year, formed a 34-nation Sunni Muslim coalition to follow Saudi's lead. As a result of their mistrust of Barack Obama, the Saudis now have adopted a more muscular form policy. They are on the attack in Yemen and other places, and they're trying to counterbalance Iran in the region. The Americans really have lost control. Where they needed control the most, solving Syria. Saudi's new king is a very impatient ally. Oh, He wants Assad gone now and Iran's influence removed. Is that course going to change now if there's a new president that's more amenable to Saudi interest? I don't think so. It's, the ship has sailed. But for all the strains, both sides still need each other. Saudi Arabia needs U.S. weapons. Obama wants regional stability. His time in Riyadh will not be about divorce, but easing the estrangement. 
Yeah, the Saudis like to buy a lot of weapons, not just from us too. They spend billions and billions. They from all spend kind- a lot. Yeah, I'm gonna. Money. I'm just right now. I'm adding a link to uh, the show notes uh, that covers a lot of this. This is really. We're talking about money from the weapons from Canada, uh, all kinds of stuff. A really great uh, link from uh, Robin Monks in the chat room. Thank you, Robin. I'll add that to the show notes that really outlines some of this. So the Saudis are pissed over all kinds of things. We have this leverage. So uh, if they were innocent, if they hadn't financed uh, right. the terrorism attacks, it, they would say, oh, these, like they said in that CPS clip, oh, these are myths. These are, this This is just crap, right? That would be their, that would be their response. This is just bunk. That's all they would say. If perhaps they are guilty and they need their own leverage, they would start to make threats. And threats? I've heard some of these threats. Stunning news today. On the front page of the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner Mark Mazzetti reports that Saudi Arabia has told the U.S. government that it will sell off hundreds of billions of dollars worth of American assets held by the kingdom. Actually, uh, by the way, um, just, just to be specific, um, $750 billion, so, uh, almost a trillion dollars, almost a trillion dollars. What do they have? These are bonds, the debt uh, they, they've bought up. Now, they, and that's not even like the majority of it. That's what's so adorable. Uh, and so they're, and if they, but if they were to dump nearly a trillion dollars into the market like that, it would be bad for everybody. Of billions of dollars worth of American assets held by the kingdom. Now, why would they be making this threat unless they are actually guilty? They are threatening to dump nearly. It's pure pure blackmail. Which which to me would seem to indicate that they are guilty. If our Congress passes a bill that would allow the Saudi government to be held responsible for the attacks on September 11, the article states that the Obama administration has been lobbying members of Congress on the side of the Saudis. And this news comes just four days before President Obama travels to Saudi Arabia. It raises a concern that I have often spoken about, an inexcusable lack of transparency. Here's what you need to know. The 2004 report of the 9-11 Commission concluded that there was, quote, no evidence that the Saudi government as an institution or senior Saudi officials individually funded the organization of the 9-11 plot. But two 9-11 Commission members, former Senator Bob Kerry and former Navy Secretary John Lehman, have both told me on my radio program that the commission did not exonerate Saudi Arabia. And before the work of the 9-11 Commission, there was a 2002 joint congressional inquiry into the attacks, which were perpetrated by 19 hijackers, 15 of whom were Saudis, as was the mastermind Osama bin Laden. Oh, 28 pages from that report have never been publicly released, and some who've read them say that they cite evidence that Saudi officials living in the United States played a key role in the plot. The allegation is that a Saudi government agent named Omar al-Bayoumi provided assistance to 9-11 hijackers Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midhar. President Obama has long promised to unseal these documents, Uh but he hasn't. And that's a disgrace. Never forget, that's the refrain we often repeat with regard to the events of September 11. But until there's full disclosure and total transparency about what occurred, the words are an empty promise that are made to the victims and their families. Well said. Well said. And that's the part I want to emphasize is the families of the victims who truly do deserve to know better. And they are demanding the release of these documents. 
President Obama leaving today for Saudi Arabia amid controversy over a push to declassify 28 pages of 9-11 documents from the commission's findings. There's no way it's a coincidence. Do you remember when, right before President Obama went to China, it came out that there was the APT persistent threat from China who was doing cyber attacks? And, oh, yeah. The right. building and all that stuff. There, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. None of that was a coincidence that it happened right before the China trip. Just like this is no coincidence that all of this is coming out right now. Mm-hmm. This is Obama's big bargaining chip, and it has to be big. It has to be covered. It needs media coverage to make it important. This is what he's going there with. And this is why when he got there, they kind of shut him down a little bit. Families of the victims writing to the president to demand that he release the so-called Saudi pages. Those documents believed to show a Saudi connection to the deadly terror attacks. The letter argued that there is, quote, no excuse for refusing to reveal the truth, whatever it may be about the events of September 11th and to ensure that anyone responsible for the worst terrorist assault in history is held to account. Seems reasonable to me. President Obama was asked about those 28 secret pages, and here's what he said to Charlie Rose. Can you believe that 28 secret pages of the 9-11 report is now, it has gone from something that we have not talked about for 13 years to something that now Charlie Rose is asking President Obama in a press conference I want to just stop for a second and acknowledge what a huge shift. I know I've already said this, but this is a huge fundamental change in the conversation around 9-11. Absolutely. This is major, and it has got to be intentional. Have you read it? You know, I, I have a sense of what's in there. I love how the politicians have never read the reports. They don't read that. You, 28 pages, Barry. You, you don't read 28 well, you, pages? You, no, no, no. You know why. It's plausible deniability. Absolutely it is. Absolutely yeah. it is. I know it is. It's just so pages, damn weird. And here's what he said to Charlie Rose. Have you read it? You know, I, I have a sense of what's in there, uh, but this has been... Uh, a process which we generally deal with through the uh, intelligence community and Jim Clapper, uh, our director of uh, national intelligence. Second time he's been in a CBS News interview where he's throwing Clapper under the bus. I love it. <laughs> Ever since Clapper lied, just throw Clapper under the bus. Uh, has been going through to make sure that uh, whatever it is that is released is not going to compromise some uh, major uh, national security interest of the United States. John Bolton is former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll get enough Bolton later. We don't need to listen to him. The entire clip is in the sink if you guys want to hear it. Uh, of course, Bolton thinks that uh, we should do it. I, I had a little audio I wanted to play from you, uh, play for you. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things of, of, of uh, the attack, uh, so to avoid a ding, that uh, happened on uh, September in the month of September. Yeah, in the month of September. Yeah. 11 days into that month. Right. Um, the firefighters really were just frontline heroes. I oh, mean, absolutely. One of the true hero, you know, hero stories. And uh, I had a personal friend who was involved with that, traveled there, all of that. And so um, when a former uh, New York City Department fire chief uh, sat up and decided to, to take a stance on the 28 pages and got involved in the suit – I thought it'd be interesting to hear what he had to say. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, all, it's audio only. I don't have video of it, but I, I still feel like it's, it's pretty important and pretty relevant. They told us the ground, the ground zero of the air was fine. Everybody got sick. I was in a coma for 16 days. They have some nerve. Yeah. I mean, we should be allowed. All we're doing is looking for a right to sue. Not, you know, they can go to court and, and we'll have to, what they're doing now is they have sovereign immunity. So they give a blanket statement. 
This JASTA law will wipe out the sovereign immunity and we'll be able to go to court and sue them if they abetted, aided, financed, or funded the terrorists. What do you say to Lindsey Graham, though? Who was the co-sponsor of the bill who's saying this could open the U.S. up to legal attacks? I, I say, I don't know what happened when he sponsored the bill and now all of a sudden... Maybe the Saudi Arabia has uh, seven or seven firms that lobby down in Washington. Mm-hmm. Maybe he got a piece of money or something. Do you think though that the White House and now Lindsey Graham? Do you think they're looking at a at a bigger picture or something else is at play? I here? think they're looking at something else between Saudi Arabia and them. They ought to think of the American families who lost their loved ones that day. Three thousand people died. I picked up the parts down there. They're worried about the Saudi feelings and how they're going to be. With, they're probably threatening them. With the $750 billion, let them do what they want. Mm-hmm. We have to stop the terrorists with the funding and everything else. And right now, we're not doing it. And President Obama was going to reject the, the bill. He didn't even read the 28 pages in the classified report. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that we're going to get routine lawsuits. This 9-11 was not routine. It was a major, major attack. We need re- legislation to prevent countries from doing this. Otherwise, Paris is going to happen again, San Bernardino, and 9-11 is going to happen again and again unless we hold these people accountable. You said that you believe the president didn't even read the 28-page classified um, did not. report. But you want that report to be released. Why is that so important to it's you? It's so important to us because we want to have the right to sue. And we also want it to be bringing this information into the court. If you look at those 28 pages, some of the people that have read it, there's been out in San Diego, embassies, money exchange hands between handlers and the 9-11 hijackers from the Saudi embassy out there. They treated these people with kid gloves. The Bush administration flew 100 people right after 9-11. 100 people. I, yeah. I, and, and if if... Excuse me. If I would have come on this episode, if I would have come on this show, I, I, I honestly feel if I would have come on this show at a hundred at episode one hundred and eighty and said this stuff, our own audience would have ridiculed me in the comments. They'd be like, "What are you doing? You 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 are a conspiracy nut. I can't listen to the show anymore. You've lost all cred- credibility." And yet, all of a sudden, we're just. I mean, I know I keep making this point, but it is blowing my face. San Diego embassies, money exchange hands between handlers and the nine eleven hijackers. From the Saudi embassy out there, they treated these people with kid gloves. The Bush administration flew 100 people right after 9-11 of the bin Laden family. That was the only plane allowed up back to Saudi Arabia. While we, the firemen, were down there digging our loved ones, looking for our loved ones. If you're allowed to sue, what does this do for you? What, what will you sue for? What will the family sue for? What do you want? I don't, I don't I'm not even, we're not even thinking about money or anything like that. We want accountability. We want it to be known that Saudi Arabia... If you look at these pages, they said it doesn't affect national security, but that's the reason they held them. Why did they hold them up? Why <laughs> was it point. because Bush and them had oil ties with, with, with uh, the king of uh, Saudi Arabia? We have to ask these questions. Why did they protect them? They had numerous things in these 28 pages where local police departments had information and the FBI squashed it. They said, no, no, it's the Saudis. Leave them alone. This is all that's in those 28 pages. Let's release them. We, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, but we're never even going to get to know the history if they hide it from us. Have you been paying attention to the president's trip now, and what do you think of it? I just saw that he got a cool reception at the airport, and um, I think you ought to put them, you know, put them right in their place and say, listen, if you're not guilty, you have nothing to worry about. And that's that the families deserve this, 3,000 families, heartbroken, we re- Oh, hearts pour out every day. My son's never going to walk back in the door. Yeah. We deserve to know what happened. We deserve to see the 28 pages. And JASTA would be a good law to prevent future attacks in the future like Paris, San Bernardino, 9-11. So my, my estimation is these 28 pages are leverage. And uh, they probably do indicate Saudi links because the oh, Saudi yeah. links are so obvious. They probably don't reveal much more than that. 
No, no, but it's it's obvious where where. Do you think they're going to call the bluff? Do you think they're going to go all in with this? Well, Obama says that if there's actual legislation passed, he's going to veto it. Um, I, I don't know. I it feels like it, here is the problem, that, Chase. But what would it really hit the fan if they overrode the veto? Veto. Well, is the genie out of the bottle now? I mean, now that now that this isn't. I mean, maybe it's I'm not, wrong it, because you can say the same I thing mean, about NSA spying. But it seems like now that we know, it's not fully out of the bottle until the pages are released. I think. But, in, but like the Snowden like, documents, once you have the actual text, the paper, you know, there's a lot of. Well, that's the genie once the once the documents. But doesn't it seem like now that we know that there's these 28 pages, it's just a matter of when and maybe it's decades or maybe it's the next president or the next sleeker. Maybe it's when Saudi Arabia finally pisses us off enough. I mean, yeah, but then what happens then? I mean, and that's the thing, right? I understand. Will they sell the bonds? Uh, Most people think it's a bluff. Well, all right. Let's say it is or let's say it isn't. The the thing is, I understand the closure for those 3000 families. I get that. I respect that wholeheartedly. But what would happen? I mean, honestly, if they didn't call the bluff and they just did it, I mean, there's a lot of things in play here that are that are in flux. It's hard to say. I feel like it would be too damaging and too disruptive to them to re- to actually sell seven hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of bonds. First of all, you can't sell that much that fast, so you can't just do it all of a sudden. Well, no. And second of all, uh, let's be honest: uh, uh, the a good old U.S. of A. America, everybody. America. Is a huge purchaser of their oil. That's true. Well, let's be honest. The U.S. military is a huge purchaser of their (laughs) oil. Um, So I I can't imagine this actually happening. But yet here we are. And it is just fascinating. Talking about it so much time later. It is really interesting. So much time later. It's crazy. Now, uh, also, Russia, huge oil, oil oil-powered nation, uh, they... They have had a bad week, Chase. First of all, do you remember two weeks ago when we covered uh, the story of those Russian fighter jets that were buzzing uh, a U.S. Uh, Navy ship real yeah, close? They were they were messing around. Yeah, they're fun. just yeah something you kind of kind of like a Top Gun kind of thing. Something you would expect like your 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 Maverick hot requesting shot. a flyby. Yeah, your Maverick hotshot pilot. Something yeah. you expect them to do, right? Well. And that seems to be the way it goes with these kinds of things. Oh, pilots, they're a bunch of hotheads. They'll do these kinds of things. That's one way you can go with it. Or you could freak the F out and say it's a national incident, which, can you guess which one the U.S. of A. is doing? Here is more. We have more reaction now to Russia's close encounter with the U.S. Navy destroyer in the Baltic Sea. Secretary of State John Kerry saying, quote, it is unprofessional. And under the rules of engagement, it could have been a shot down. So people need. It could have been a shot down. He he, he doesn't know how to read a read a script. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Which which uh, Chase, Chase and I like. Listen, I'm not Mister Pronunciator here, right? No, but, but no, he just he didn't even read. That is literally what he does. Is he is paid a million dollars a year to read a teleprompter? It yeah. is literally his. Like I I I I I. This is not the only thing I do. Speaking on air is only part of what I do at this job, right? Yeah. So sometimes I'll say things like antergross, or I'll say mate, and I won't say mate, right? That is kind of understandable. When I am a million-dollar personality and yeah. all I am paid to do is read the teleprompter, it is a bit less forgiving. It's unprofessional and utter the rules of engagement that could have been shoot down. <laughs> and under the rules of engagement, it could have been a shot down. 
So people need to understand that this is serious business and the United States is not going to be intimidated in the high seas. Ambassador John Bolton, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. or Fox News. Now, I cut off John Bolton earlier in the show because I was going to make you listen to John poor, Bolton now. Poor John. I know. Such a nice guy. You should look up good old. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice guy. Yeah. 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 Like, a lot of the, like, like a lot wink, of the nice wink, guys. Nod, yeah. nod. Yes. <laughs> you should look him up. Anyways, listen to the bloodlust in this man. And, and when he talks about about how we should treat Russia. Good, good day to you. Could have been shot down. That's the way we have approached this. What do you think? Well, that's strong rhetoric by Secretary Kerry. I'm afraid that may be the sum total of the administration's response. I'm afraid that may be the sum total of the administration's response, a.k.a. if we only give them a stern warning that we're not okay with that, that's not good enough. A.k.a. we need to accelerate our aggressive stance with another nuke-powered nation. This is an extremely serious situation. These pilots, these hothead pilots that just flew by our ship, this, 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 of all of the things, yeah. the Syria situation, the Crimea situation, of all of the things, this, this, flying by the ship, that, 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 that is a serious offense. Not simply for the uh, uh, combat runs made at our destroyer and the risk of uh, something. Combat runs. The guys were probably mooning them or flipping them the bird as they f- Combat runs, guys. He is classifying these flybys where they're like showing their dicks to the guys on the boat as as combat runs. They, they were inverted. Yes, of course. Right. That's the, uh, that, that makes it understandable. Happening, but because of what it reflects about Moscow's views of the United States. So it potentially a couple of hotshot pilots decide to show their dicks to some guys on a boat reflects how Moscow views the United States. Uh, and our commitment to our NATO members. They think they can do this. Uh, I think it's the precursor of more. It rests on earlier uh, belligerent Russian actions invading Georgia, putting troops into Ukraine. He's going all the way back to Georgia. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I know. And then and then mentions Ukraine. Do you remember how the entire Ukrainian government was overthrown during the Olympics, why we expected Putin to be distracted, so we overthrew the Ukrainian government? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember how one of our very own said, fuck the EU? That's the U.S., right? So, of course, no, but yeah, these are all reflections. These are all reflections of Putin. Building an air base in Latakia, Syria. Now they are testing NATO and NATO forces directly. I think uh, there's more to come. Well, uh, Colonel Peters was with us yesterday. He said this could lead to American blood. This could lead to American blood. Wow. So they fly by, which, again, happens all the time. And again, as we covered weeks, months ago, Russian pilots are actually known for doing this. This is something that the this is like a known thing that they do. Peters was with us yesterday. He said this could lead to American blood. Yeah. Uh, And I said, wow, that's a statement. Why? And he said, when you're in this close proximity with one another, mistakes can happen. People can make bad decisions. Well, look, if that airplane had just uh, caught a gust of wind, it could have been right up against that destroyer. You know, just a gust of wind chase. And, you know, Russia perceives weakness here. They are pushing us. And it's precisely when our structures of deterrence break down, when the rulers in Moscow think they can do this and get away with us, that the risk of an actual conflict. I like the idea that uh, Vladimir Putin sitting in Moscow, like called up like one of these hotshot pilots. And he's like, look, I got a great idea. 
no, look, you, what you need to do yeah. is you need to fly yeah. near the ship. Yeah, get really close. And then <laughs> invert. <laughs> kind of hostility, some kind of exchange of military uh, action increases. So- look at Bill reading his notes right there. Didn't expect the camera on him. There's all of the questions he's supposed to be asking him right there on the piece of paper. Uh. So, uh, as I say, I think it's important not simply to focus on he's this one incident, attention. but to look at the uh-huh. larger pattern, which is negative for the United States in a lot of ways. This major general out of Russia described that... What he's really saying there when he says, look at the larger pattern, is he's saying this isn't a big deal, but if you add every single thing that we can think of up, that makes it a big deal. So in the big picture, it's a big deal. Of course, this isn't a big deal. That's what he's saying. That's what he just said. This one incident, but to look at the larger pattern, which is negative for the United States in a lot of ways. This major general out of Russia described the distressed reaction of our American counterparts. Well, well it, what, what do you think we would have or how we would have reacted? Look, I, I just worry that President Obama doesn't apologize for the Russians for getting our destroyer in the way of that airplane. They think that they can do this and not face consequences. And I think the future is test in the Baltic region to NATO members, Estonia, Latvia, all right, you get the idea. The Fox News angle, John Bolton, the military-industrial complexes, go get him. So, of course, if you were to, if you were going to give a head, a name to the beast, if there was the industrial-military complex, which yeah. is massive, which its its tentacles go into every state, it has bases all over the world. It helps power the empire. It dominates space and it dominates the waters. If there was one head, one voice. For this military beast, I think we'd all agree it's your buddy. My good friend. John McCain. Ah, John. Right? John McCain is the mouthpiece of the armed services, and he sits down with General Spaghetti, and he asks General Spaghetti a bunch of questions. Now, what I love about this clip, I'm sorry again, this is from C-SPAN Radio, so it's audio only, but what I love about this clip is it's exactly a perfect picture of how the corrupt government works. McCain who's already on the side of the military, cherry-picks General Spaghetti to sit down in an empty room and get him to agree to everything McCain says. So then that way McCain can go on Sunday talk shows, CNN, talk to Wolf, go on MSNBC and Fox News and say, well, look, military leaders tell me these things, and these are things we must do, ergo boots on the ground. Right. Yep. That's coming next. What I'm about to present to you is how the justification and framing is done. Listen to the way McCain leads the witness in every single question to get exactly the answer he wants. This is where the corruption begins. Well, the most senior officers in our military, General Neller, Milley, Selva, and Dunford, testified Russia is the greatest threat to America. Do you agree? Chairman, I do agree. Uh, New York Times story this morning, Russian submarine threat the Mediterranean North Atlantic. Are you concerned about sea lines of communications in the Atlantic in Suez? Chairman, I am concerned. Are you concerned about sea lines of communication in the Atlantic? That's a good (laughs) question. That's something we should worry about. Of course he's worried about it. Russian fighters made passes inside of 50 feet. You heard my opening statement. Um, What what should be our response uh, to this gross violation of international law? Chairman, I believe that uh, from a military perspective, we should sail and fly wherever we we are allowed to by international law, and we should be strong, clear, and consistent in our message in that regard. This may sound a little uh, tough, but should we 
Should we make an announcement to the Russians? Should we make an announcement to the Russians wow. that we are so pissed that they flew close to us because this is a major incident? Should we let the Russians know they're on notice? An announcement to the Russians that if they place the lives of our men and women on board Navy ships in danger, that we will take appropriate action? Sir, I believe that should be known, yes. That should be known. I don't know what's going on between us and Russia, but whatever it is, it's going up to the next level. Uh, Here's another report that covers the uh, Russian planes. (gasps) It's your girl! Russia is at it again. Last week, a Russian aircraft buzzed the USS Donald Cook in international waters. And now, a Russian fighter jet has flown dangerously close to a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft over the Baltic Sea. So, what's behind these military provocations, and what can the U.S. do about it? What can the U.S. do about it? What can we do? If you want to find out what KT thinks, you can watch the rest in the supporter sync. To me, I think it is justification for the next thing. You take something that's semi-legit, you amp it up to the next level, because honestly, there are uh, military personnel's lives put at risk. It is not a safe thing to do. It is not advisable in a combat zone. Those are all true statements. And so you can justifiably say Russia is being unprofessional and dangerous here, like a lot of pilots. Just about every pilot I've ever met. (laughs) Yeah. So I find this to be a fascinating – 185 is your marker for the next generation of aggression with Russia, and I find that to be fascinating to be sitting here. Mm-hmm. Speaking yeah. of things shifting gears, the next generation, a couple of things. First of all, our Patreon has gone to the next generation. And second, the 2016 election race has gone to the next generation. Boom. Let's, let's talk boom. about both, but first, the Patreon. We are sitting at 457 patrons, and as such, we have unlocked – the next level of our Patreon support, and we have published the unfilter leak with our the unfilter cables. Yes, the cables. And you know, Chase, there's been some good feedback. We had some different structures in there for uh, 33 members, 33 level members. Yeah, and that's the number one thing we've gotten some feedback on. We're incorporating that feedback, uh, but I I figured we'd share a little bit since yeah, because I've seen some of those comments too. And yeah, I'm glad you've seen them. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna incorporate their, the the uh, patrons' uh, feedback into our ideas. But I I do want to, and since we need to do that, I don't want to give everything. Sure. But I want to give a little bit of tease. So behind the scenes, we've been working on something really cool. Uh, listener Sean has built a collaborative environment. Uh, I feel like... What? Well, I'm just going to say it's something that takes advantage of the fact that our audience has been our best ally for 185 weeks in tracking the people's version of history. Right. And the improvement we're going to make is going to make our patrons more valuable, our audience members more valuable, and and hopefully we'll bring better and more content into the show, which might even help us get to a future milestone down the road, which I will talk about later. I, I guess what I'm going to say at this point is we are currently working on something really cool. If you're a patron, you know what I'm talking about right now. If you're not a patron yet, I invite you to go to patreon.com slash unfilter. Sign up. If you become a $2 or, uh, or or above supporter, you get access to a whole bunch of stuff. But the real magic sauce is at 5 bucks. Right. You get, the- you get the back catalog, the back sync. You can actually go back and see everything in the overtime folders. It is like really a whole library of vital information. that, And it really helps even... back up all these clips yeah, in case absolutely. something ever happened to you yeah. on Filter Show. Yeah, totally. And it, there's so many things like uh, just for example uh, in that 9-11 folder – 
Uh, let me see here. If I go back into that 9-11 folder, there are uh, one, two clips that we did not play on the show. If I go into the Russia folder, there's another clip that we did not play on the show. And when I go into our next segment, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven clips I don't plan to play unless they come up. Wow. But those are always available in the sync. So additional stuff. And sometimes you might hear us even reference something like, where the hell did they get that information? It's probably in the sink. Yep. Or it could yeah. be in the show notes. Probably this is a listener-supported show. That way our our focus is on those patron numbers, not what's going to get us the most clicks, what's going to get us the most YouTube revenue, what's going to make us sponsorable, what's going to be – and what's the right – should we put some boobies on this artwork what with a crazy title? metric? 9-11 revealed. Like – Right, we don't have to go for that kind of stuff because, really, we just have to make sure that our patrons are happy. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Go there to keep this show on the air. It is a hell of a lot of work. Thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about the 2016 election for a little bit. Don't worry if you're not huge into this. We won't spend the rest of the time here. There's lots more coming up. But if you are kind of into the 2016 election, even from afar, I have a couple of things I want to update you on. There was sort of a a semi-unprecedented collaboration that took place between the Ted Cruz campaign (laughs) and the Kasich campaign. You call it a collaboration. Some people are using the other C word. Yeah, you could. You could. <laughs> I want to ask each and every one of you to come out and vote for me ten times. Ted Cruz betting big on Indiana, announcing he's joining forces with John Kasich in an unprecedented last-ditch effort to stop Donald Trump. The divide-and-conquer agreement, Cruz's campaign will, quote, focus its time and resources in Indiana and, quote, clear the path for Kasich in Oregon and New Mexico. Kasich confirming the campaign collusion in a statement, writing that, quote, keeping Trump from a plurality in Indiana is critical to keeping him from the nomination. Oh, recent polling shows Cruz trailing Trump by single digits in the Hoosier state. All right. So they collaborate together to try to say, hey, I'll coordinate here. I'll make my I'll spend my efforts here. You spend your efforts there. Turns out uh, Trump had a pretty good night. John Dickerson is our political director and, of course, the moderator of Face the Nation. So uh, this was called Chase. I don't know if you caught that. You probably did, but they were calling this the Northeast primary, which I like these different names now, man. This is nice. I'm digging this. Dickerson. You mean not Super Tuesday six or five or whatever? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, we, so John Dickerson from Host the Nation or whatever it's called, stops by to chat with our buddy Mr. Paley. Dickerson is our political director and, of course, the moderator of Face the Nation. Face John, Nation. clean sweep for Trump. It's even possible that Kasich and Cruz tonight will have no delegates at all out of the voting this evening. It couldn't go any better for Donald Trump. Then it's going tonight. I guess they could drop out. That would be the only thing that would go better. So now the question is, who drops in behind Donald Trump and the Republican Party? Do they start getting behind him, coming to acceptance with Donald Trump? We might see one last spasm from the never Trump uh, movement as he gets closer to almost looking inevitable. There's still the question of whether he'll get the majority of delegates. Can you believe we are at this point? I can you believe this, dude? Our red book has has Trump. I mean, I thought the, I thought America would be sick of Trump by now. But he's giving that foreign policy speech tomorrow that Major mentioned. Watch that, because how will Republicans respond? If there's a lot of quick and ready praise for Donald Trump and his vision, we'll know that the party is moving behind him and assuming he's the nominee. So he gave uh, that speech today, and uh, I have some highlights of it for you if you'd like to see a little bit of that speech. Uh, this is coming. This I'll just play a bit from Fox Business News uh, because you can watch the entire thing in the supporter sync, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, here it is: Trump's foreign policy speech. Some highlights. 
And then there's ISIS. I have a simple message for them. Their days are numbered. I won't tell them where and I won't tell them how. No specifics. We must, as a nation, be more unpredictable. We are totally predictable. This is such a great line. This is such brilliance. I don't got to give you specifics because if I do, I'm helping the enemy. Genius! We tell everything. We're sending troops, we tell them. We're sending something else, we have a news conference. We have to be unpredictable. So, uh, I've got not the, transparent to the American people. I've got the entire thing. Woo! I don't. Do you want to see any more of it? Oh, are, are you good? Do you want? Good. You're good. Okay. Good. So, uh, you heard the CBS uh, uh, Face the Nation guy. Yep. How will the pundits respond? Washington, the, the foreign policy establishment, you might say, has been waiting for this speech. What? So, I figured we should probably go to Fox News. Yeah. And Fox News had your buddy John Bolton, and I cut all John Bolton's crap out of this so that we don't have to listen to him again because he's a real pain to listen to. Uh, but he basically said Trump did a great job. In fact, John Bolton said Trump should have made this speech six months ago. Washington, the- and then uh, John Bolton made a plug for uh, Ted Cruz. After the plug for Ted Cruz, they tossed it to a Washington establishment the reporter. The foreign policy establishment, you might say, has been waiting for this speech. What, what do you think they heard? How, how is it uh, being received? Well, a lot of anticipation surrounding it. Um, the question was, is this going to be Mr. Trump's sort of come to Jesus moment with the establishment? And I believe that it was. Uh, this is the best tone and tenor we've heard from him on the national defense, probably for the duration of the campaign so far. I agree with the ambassador. I would have liked to have seen it six to eight months ago. Would have made me feel a lot better about his prospects as commander in chief. But I think what he did today was he brought this substance to the heart of the Washington establishment. And I think that's going to go a long way towards engendering some goodwill going forward as he's trying to build up his foreign policy team. Oh, so perhaps it seems like there are some established right folks that are saying, well, maybe we'll consider Trump. However, uh, your buddy, my good friend, Teddy, Lion Ted, he's not taking it lying down. He is spicing it up. He, like a great politician at the last moment, is making a big announcement to grab headlines. After a great deal of time and thought, after a great deal of consideration and prayer. Consideration and prayer. Why don't I believe him? I don't believe him. This this has never happened before, by the way. Picking a running mate. He is mathematically, as I mentioned at the top of the show, for us anyway, he's mathematically eliminated from even getting the nomination. His only chance is at a contested convention. And he's already named a running mate. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. And uh, here, and what's what's so what's so disingenuous about it is he claims that he consulted God. I prayed about this, too. and God told him to strategically pick somebody who would be strategically optimal oh. for his presidential campaign oh. and announce it early. It, it, it is so disingenuous that it it's it seems obvious on its face. Anyways, let's watch Teddy, and uh, he, you know. Uh, just watch his body language if you're watching the video version, and uh, we'll continue on. After a great deal of time and thought, after a great deal of consideration and prayer, I decided to be ruthless and generate some attention. I have come to the conclusion. Stop pausing. That if I am nominated to be president of the United States, that I will run on a ticket. With my v- vice presidential nominee, Carly Fiorina. Kara. 
All right, so he goes on. You can watch. I know it's hard. So I know you. I actually, it's funny. Like I considered making you watch more of him because I know how much he bothers you. You know what I? You know what I need to do? What? And um, I mean, I just don't have a lot of time to do this. But <laughs> to take like his speech, right? Yeah. Like there, and just take out all the pauses. Yeah. And just see just how see it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's fun. Like with Trump, it's fun to slow him down. But with Cruz, it'd be fun to speed him up. Speed him up. All right. So the only person that might be more agonizing to listen to than Ted Cruz. Yeah. And I, this is just, I mean, you is listen. This, is this one of my good friends? Carly Fiorina. My buddy. Today, I'm very proud and very humbled and honored to announce that I have accepted Senator Ted Cruz's offer to be his vice president for the Republican nomination. People all across this nation. You know, when I look at her, Chase, uh, I think of what a war hawk she was during the debates. She was the least likable candidate aside from Ted Cruz up on the stage. She did such a great job at HP. You know, when I look at Carly, I I don't think of it's I don't think about the fact that she's a, a woman or not. That doesn't come into the that no, doesn't come into it. Me, yeah. It's more like she's more like she reminds me of Ted Cruz. She seems extremely Ted unlikable. Ted Cruz should have got that gal from Maury to be his running mate. I I cannot think of a more unlikable political candidate that Ted Cruz could have picked. You now have the two most unlikable candidates running on the same ticket. Like, Teddy thinks he's making an amazing strategic uh, move by picking a woman as his VP. Really brilliant to go up against Hillary. I mean, that part is is pretty solid. Uh. The problem is, uh, I I don't know if you remember listening to Fiorita during... during, she wants to turn wherever ISIS lives into glass. She wants to nuke it so hard that the sand melts into glass. That's what she wants. That's her solution. She wants to turn wherever ISIS is into glass. That's how. That's her solution. Wow. She is a war hawk, and which is funny because she's actually the antithesis of what Cruz is in terms of foreign involvement. Cruz is very much a traditional Tea Partyist, constitutionalist. Be involved is only where we need to be, and yet she is. Uh, we need to restore the military. Right. We need to spend more on the military. Yep. We need to go out and nation build. So to bring her in is like bringing in the most unlikable possible other candidate who wasn't a winner. She wasn't a winner. He picked a loser. To be his running mate. Yeah, this is going to solve it. Whoa. And by the way, have you noticed this in the Republican nomination process? Let's see, Trump bringing in Dr. Ben Carson, uh, then also bringing in, uh, what's that guy from New Jersey? Oh, yeah. Christy. Chris Crisco. Yeah, I mean, you know, bringing all these people in, it's like, I don't remember that happening in other... I mean, it probably It's like has. celebrity endorsements. Yeah, but it's like they're bringing in the losers... It's like American Idol, and the losers are going, you know, I'm with you, buddy. Nice job. Now come to do my backups. Yeah. Republican nomination. People all across this nation know that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton both will be disastrous for this nation. She's better spoken than Ted. I'll give her that. Oh, she yeah. is. She's better. She is better presenter. She's better spoken. She has better passion. She's more believable than Ted Cruz. Yeah. She I, honestly, I think they should. I think it should be. She's the president, and Cruz is the VP. And I think she's way more <laughs> qualified than Ted. Chat room's great. Please clap. You see what we have? You know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. They are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. They're both liberal, we know that. Wow. But, 
you know, Hillary Clinton, like so many politicians, Hillary Clinton has made her millions selling access and influence from inside the system. And Donald Trump has made his billions buying people like Hillary Clinton. That's their main line, right? That's what they have. And that's what I find fascinating about these duos. They can team up on that particular narrative. So there you go. There's your big 2016 news for the right. Uh. And now for the left, well, we got to go back to the Northwest primaries. Now to the Democrats again. Hillary Clinton takes Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware tonight. Connecticut still a toss-up. While across the state line, Sanders has won Rhode Island. Nancy Cordes is at Clinton headquarters in Philadelphia. Now, I hope this doesn't get us taken down for YouTube for playing media coverage of Hillary Clinton, which has music in the background. But I think actually what she's about to say before and after the prepackaged clip they're about to run are very important. Nance? Scott Clinton came out a few minutes ago on the heels of those big wins, and she might as well have been carrying an enormous olive branch to Bernie Sanders. If you're having a hard time hearing her, what she's saying is when uh, Clinton gave her speech afterwards, it was essentially her first, hey, if you're a Sanders reporter, come over to my side of the fence. Because she praised Sanders. She said that she knew that they would unify. And then she went through a fairly extensive laundry list of issues uh, where she and Sanders and all Democrats uh, feel very much the same way. So she's beginning a new approach that I think is going to play out more and more. She'll become this. Will be, she'll turn the volume up on this, and that is let's unify the party. Uh, climate change and universal health care and income inequality, making a clear bid to try to win over some of his very disappointed supporters. But she also made it clear uh, that on the heels of these big wins, she is now all but the nominee. Now that's a clear, the clear point. I'm all but the nominee. Now here she will be making her pitch. With your help, we're going to come back to Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention. With the most votes and the most pledged delegates. And we will unify our party to win this election. There it is. Now listen to this. Sanders faces virtually insurmountable odds. Virtually insurmountable odds. That's the key word there. And I think that's the key point to take. Now, uh, as as an other example, this is now the narrative the media is pushing forward exactly as your Unfiltered Red Book predicted. If you want to go left, you go to MSNBC. And one of the most left on MSNBC would be Rachel Meadow and Mr. Hayes. Well, Mrs. Hayes, depending on... Whatever. Uh, And they think the burn's over. On election day. Chris, let me just ask you about also the the national Democratic uh, results tonight, the prospects between Sanders and Clinton. We do have um, a statement from Sanders tonight. We've also got these results with her winning four out of five. Is is the race... has it sort of crossed the Rubicon here? Crossed the Rubicon. Is that like Rachel Meadow trying to like say really nicely and like the nicest way possible is Sanders screwed? Is that what yeah, she's saying? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think I'm not sure. On election day. Chris, let me just ask you about also the, the national Democratic uh, results tonight, the prospects between Sanders and Clinton. We do have um, a statement from Sanders tonight. We've also got these results with her yep. winning four out of five. Is this is the race? Uh, 
has it sort of crossed the Rubicon here? I think so. I mean, the, I think the, the acknowledgement from the Sanders folks in that uh, statement, uh, look, they can do math uh, like anyone else can. Oh. And at a certain point, uh, they can do math. There's your first meme. Uh, it just becomes, I think, untenable to tell supporters to sell them on a story that is increasingly improbable. About- this is the other meme. You are being disingenuous to supporters. You are misleading funders by telling them you have a chance to win. That is the more important meme being pushed by the mainstream left. To tell supporters to sell them on a story that is increasingly improbable about winning the majority of pledged delegates. That seems quite absent some massively shocking uh, event. That seems uh, quite, quite, quite improbable. And I think they concede as much uh, in that. It's improbable. It seems improbable. And of course, Sanders is facing mounting pressure to concede. The New York Times reported uh, this afternoon that the Sanders campaign will reassess their position after the voting tonight. This left the impression that Sanders was thinking about pulling the plug and conceding the race to the nomination to Hillary Clinton. Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid oh. said today Sanders has no path to win the nomination. No, because, no path. Because our superdelegates are firmly in her pocket. I mean, her back. No path. And, of course, Hill Dog says, hey, you know what? It's time for Byrne to get in line. At that time, 40 percent of my supporters said they would not support him. Now, she's talking about 2008. Uh, so do you remember it? So the big narrative, in fact, I believe you've even said it to me before is, well, look, in the in 2008. The superdelegate switched over from the dog to the berry. Yeah. And so it could happen for Bernie, too. That's been the narrative, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you count the superdelegate, here's what the narrative actually has been. And let's just be honest. Their narrative has been you don't count superdelegates unless they've pledged for Bernie. And then if they haven't pledged for Bernie, then you say they could switch. I don't even know why they even include them in the process until the convention. Just don't even have them reported. So, uh, of course, superdelegates have always been uh, a factor. And now Hill Dog's either gonna, way. Hill Dog is now going to start telling you why this isn't like 2008. See, in 2008, her superdelegates switched over to Obama because she told them to. That's why the delegates switched, because she told them to. And that's why Bernie needs to shut up and just get in line, because they're not going to be switching for him, because she's not going to tell them to. Listen. At that time, 40% of my supporters said they would not support him. So from the time I withdrew until the time I nominated him, I nominated him at the convention in Denver. Oh. I spent an enormous amount. Wow. She's saying she was she she voted for I I think she means I voted for his nomination. She's saying in other words, I threw Just in the behind way she, Barry. the way she says it. I know, it. I know. And she's essentially saying now it's time for Bernie to get in line. The time I withdrew until the time I nominated him, I nominated him him being Obama at the convention in Denver. I spent an enormous amount of time. She has lost a lot of weight. There will be a clip coming up in the overtime uh, from a few years ago. She has lost a considerable amount of weight. I, I hope she's OK. Convincing my supporters to support him. And I'm happy to say the vast majority did. That is what I think one does. So what she's saying here is, look, it's time for you to now support the party. Uh, that's what I did. That's what one does at this stage. It's time for you to understand it's go time for Hill Dog. Majority did. That is what I think one does. That is certainly what I did, and I hope that uh, we will see the same this year. So get in line, Bernie. That's what that's what that's saying. Yeah. That's at least how I see it. And of course, even though she's been in the public eye for so long, she still seems very awkward at certain moments, like during this last if debate. I may. So in this last debate, once again, it came up. Senator Sanders, 
the speeches that you gave to Goldman Sachs. So. Those Goldman Sachs speeches. Yep, the, the transcripts that she has control over. Those just keep haunting her. And uh, t- let's let's play this out, Chase, and then I'll ask you what you think of her response. So I'd like to ask you, you've said that uh, you don't want to release the transcripts until everybody does it. But if there is nothing in those speeches that you think would change voters' minds, why not just release the transcripts and put this whole issue to bed? You know, I like that there's, first of all, there's people cheering for yeah! the, There's nothing in those speeches, and everybody cheers. And then there's, why not release them? Then a whole bunch of cheer. Like, the people are cheering for everything. It's, God, we're a bunch of monkeys. The transcripts and put this whole issue to bed. You know... When I was in public service serving as the senator from New York, I did stand up to the banks. Uh, I did make it clear that their behavior would not be excused. I'm the only one on this stage who did not vote to deregulate swaps and derivatives as Senator Sanders did, which led to a lot of the problems that we had with Lehman Brothers. Wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. Isn't she doing a good job? Secretary. So far, she's good, right? So far, but... Now, if you're going to look at the problems that actually caused the Great Recession, you got to look at the whole picture. It was a giant insurance company, AIG. It was an investment bank, Lehman Brothers. It was mortgage companies like Countrywide. I'm not saying that Senator Sanders did something untoward when he voted to deregulate swaps and derivatives. But the fact is, he did. And that contributed to the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which started the cascade. Secretary Clinton, the question was about the transcripts of the speeches to Goldman Sachs. Listen to the frickin' crowd, dude. It's unbelievable. There, there, are certain, there are certain expectations when you run for president. This is a new one. And I've said, if everybody agrees to do it, because there are speeches for money on the other side, I know that. But I will tell you this. There is... Listen to her getting booed. She's getting booed. She's the one running right now. She's pulling ahead, and she's getting booed by the people. She's for money on the other side. I know that. But I will tell you this. There is... Listen to this. This is your next president, everybody. There is a long-standing expectation that everybody running release their tax returns, and you can go... And see eight years of tax returns, and I've released 30 years of tax returns. We, and I think every candidate, including Senator Because I've been planning to do this for 30 years. Senator Sanders and Donald Trump should do the same. Secretary Clinton, we're going to get to the tax returns later, but just to I put love, a button. I love the fact that she deflects it to the tax returns, yeah. but... Hello. She's getting on her game, though, right? Oh yeah. I mean, she's still well, not. It, she's not doing is, as good as I expect. But, but she's it's getting the better. classic politician thing. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah, of course. But it, she's doing it, dude. She's she's got it down. She's got it down. I actually expect a little more from her. I think now for the Democratic I, I, nomination, she's going to be able to make through all this without having to release them. Obviously. Right. And it, it is your Democratic opponent and many Democratic voters who want to see those transcripts. It's not about the Republicans. <laughs> the same standard for everybody when everybody does it okay i will do it 
But let's set and expect the same standard oh. on tax returns. Everybody does it, and then we move forward. Thank you. Well, let me respond. Yeah, he, yeah, you can learn, learn more in the overtime. I just thought that was a particularly bad show. Uh, she, you can see she's doing pretty good, but not good enough, Chase. Not no. good enough. No, no not at all. No. Uh, and, of course, it's not. You're right. I, don't th- I think she's going to make it through the whole thing. So uh, I think we go through California. We see how California lands. And I think if... Uh, Wait, you're going to do a Howard Dean thing? We're going to go through California. We're going to do Washington. <laughs> no, yeah! no, no. What I mean is uh, I think Sanders' campaign's in it at least through California's vote. When's that? When does California vote? Uh, what, three, four weeks? Shoot, shoot. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so specific because people could be listening to this any time. That's true. My point is, I, I, should, I shouldn't have do that. I shouldn't have done that because my point is, I think that's the Sanders' campaign strategy. I'm still kind of figuring this out. This is like first iteration, but I, I think... It's beginning to come to a wind down for him, yeah. and he's going to transition to, uh, well, I made a difference. I made an impact, which is kind of sad. But I, we'll talk more about it in the overtime, so we don't need so to get do into you, it do now. So do you think, because uh, I'm, I'm willing to concede at this point, obviously, for, for Bernie. You are. You're ready to say it's Hilldog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think uh, Hillary's going to throw uh, Bernie a bone here and give him something to the, try to unify no. the party? Nope. I mean, but I mean, remember Barack hooked her up as Secretary of State, yeah, right? Barack had to because she is one of the most well-connected politicians in modern history of the empire. Uh, Sanders isn't liked by many. Sanders doesn't play the political game. Sanders doesn't hold any leverage over the Clintons. I don't think he has. I don't think he has anything on her really. That I mean, maybe he does. But I just – I don't think so. I think uh, he'll go back to his job and uh, it'll be quiet. I I don't know. I I don't want to – I don't know. I feel kind of sad about it because, you know, here in Washington, he's he's had a big impact. Right. That's true. But we'll watch and see. Let us know on filter.reddit.com. This is – you know, obviously, we we covered the last election cycle four years ago. You guys probably remember that night where we were going around and checking everything out. This is, we're buckle in, you know, strap in, because here it comes. Here it comes. It's about to get really interesting. Hey, Chase, should yes. we end it on a high note? We should. Sir? You know, 420 passed recently. Wait, what? Today, under the Federal Controlled Substance Act, marijuana is listed as a Schedule One drug. So there's been talk about it getting rescheduled recently. Hey, I wrote that in the Red Book a long time ago. Right alongside heroin. And that is why I believe we must take marijuana out of the Federal Controlled Substance Act. Welcome back. Today just might be the 20th of April for some. But the date 420 has become an unofficial day of recognitions of sorts for marijuana users. Marijuana is legal for recreational and medicinal use in four states in the District of Columbia. For medical use only, it is permissible in another 20 states. On Sunday, Governor Tom Wolf signed a law to put Pennsylvania on that list of places where patients can use the plant as treatment. Dispensaries are fully operational where legal, and competition is even ramped up between neighboring states, Washington and Oregon. Today in California, thousands will gather again this year in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park to mark 420. The state will vote on whether to make it recreationally legal later this year. Of course, it has been legal there uh, for medical purposes for quite some time. But as Bernie Sanders points out, it's still illegal at the federal level for that reason. It's tricky to find investors for a new class of businesses that are growing out of the new laws that states are passing, which, of course, still leaves many 
subject to harsh criminal charges. Alan St. Pierre is the executive director of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, otherwise known as NORML. Alan, welcome back to the show. Happy 420. Uh, happy 420 to you. Uh, let me ask, uh, let's talk about let the specifics the here. It has to do with the scheduling of, mm-hmm. of, of marijuana as a hard narcotic. Now, get ready. This might kill your buzz. This might harsh your buzz a little bit. A la heroin, as Bernie Sanders just said. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. All of the people running for president right now seem to have the same position on moving on rescheduling marijuana. Is that are you fully confident of that yeah, every, of the five candidates? All presidential wannabes today, at a minimum, want to see marijuana. I think the only Chris Christie was the only one not for. He was it. the only one that really yeah. was against it. Yep. What does it take to get it rescheduled? Is it an act of Congress, mm-hmm. or can President Obama do it by executive order? Because there's been some question about this. Ideally, it should be by Congress, since they're the ones that created this whole conundrum, if you will. But the executive branch, under the Controlled Substances Act, has the ability to reschedule, downschedule marijuana. There are petitions from governors, there's petitions from senators that are asking them to do this, and pretty clearly the pressure from the states are coming. So if it's it's lowered on the class of drugs, what does that mean? It means possession is what? Oh, so this has nothing to do actually with people's... The criminal code, okay. Exactly. Oh, so this really just has to do with research and and the ability to use it for pharmaceutical purposes, which would be great. We've always supported that. It doesn't really affect the legalization argument. There you go. So I think that's sort of just as we've been talking about the rescheduling, that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I had not had a chance to watch this clip, but uh, producer Matt tossed one in for the high note this week. Oh, we did. Yeah. And uh, I thought, why not? uh, Let's give it a look and see what he threw in here. I, I haven't reviewed it yet. Okay. All right, Colorado, I love you, but we got to start putting on pants. When Wait, what? <laughs> I, I think I do remember this clip. Did he just say what I think he said? We go to buy marijuana. Here's the thing. I know it's legal. The people have spoken. No judgment for me. Do your thing. Knock yourself out. But this morning, I'm going to the dry cleaners, and right next to the dry cleaners is a marijuana dispensary. And I see a woman hurriedly. So he's not going to the pot shop. He's going to the dry cleaner. Well, yeah, he's uh, obviously uh, in news. He's a good boy. He, they wouldn't go to the pot shop. Well, they couldn't because if he did, yeah, he could lose his job. Of course, because he's a reporter. That's right. He's got to be uh, objective. Get out of her car and rush toward the door of the dispensary wearing nothing but underwear. I mean, yeah, she had a shirt on and a jacket, but underwear. Why do you think this guy's making this video? He's on YouTube Live or something, right? Is he yeah. just trying to engage his audience? And yes, they weren't Victoria's Secret, nothing revealing. It was boxers. But still, she didn't take the time to at least put on pants before going to the marijuana dispensary. This feels like, well, this feels like bullshit. Now, look, the eyes of the world are upon us. Everybody's watching how we handle legal marijuana. Uh, uh, actually, yeah. most of the world is just kind of doesn't give a shit what you do. Now, some legislators that are considering similar laws in their state are watching you. Uh, and they probably don't give a shit what your dumb, dumb, crazy-ass population is doing in Colorado. That doesn't really... I mean, this seems like such a straw man argument because he's... I, first of all, I don't even believe that he saw one person wearing boxers. How does he know they're wearing boxers? If he's across the street at the right, dry cleaner, yeah, is he using his yeah. super news reporter vision to zoom in on her underwear? 
How does he know they're boxers? That just smells like bullshit right there, and it's not the person in the boxers, I think, that has shit in their pants. I think it's this guy. And then, with this whole eyes on the whole world, amping it up as if it's some huge dramatic thing, when in reality, uh, we're more than a year into this, and lots of places are doing this, and it's not really the entire world watching anymore. Watching how we handle legal marijuana, and the last thing we want to do is add to the perception that we're a bunch of stoners who uh, don't have the energy to get out of bed. No, that's not what we that's not how I would say we stereotype Colorado. I I think see it's this is this is a complete fake argument and now he's just and he's just giving you guys a heads up. Right. I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help you out here. Yeah. I'm just trying to give you a yeah. good tip. How we yeah. handle legal marijuana and the last thing we want to do is add to the perception that we're a bunch of stoners we, who we, uh, don't have the energy to get out of bed. So when you're going to buy marijuana, at least please Put on pants. That's all I ask. Have a good night. Wow. How do you follow up that? I know how. By going to our Unfilter subreddit page at unfilter.reddit.com. That's where you can submit stories or engage in the conversation or tell us if you end shows on high notes. <laughs> also, patreon.com slash unfilter. Without so. any pants on. <laughs> Gosh, that's such a juicy one. If you oh. want to watch that a few times, it's in the support wow. sync. You can go watch it. Yes. Hey, uh, the show was not live last week because of Linux Fest Northwest, which, big shout out to Mr. Chase. Oh. And, of course, Mr. Kessler, the GeekGamer.tv crew, totally, totally came through. By the way, Great did you- audio on the Team Emma stuff. I was going to say. I was going to say. Yeah. You got you got to be impressed with that. Good. Really good audio. Really good audio. Yeah. Way better than Team Noah. <laughs> Mr. Chase. Thanks, buddy. With the production quality. Thanks, Where would people go if they want to find you online, Mr. If people Nunes? want to find me online, head over to my Twitter. That is at Nunes, N-U-N-E-S. And I, I love the followers. I engage all the time, and I love doing that stuff. What about you, Chris? Are well, you on the Twitters? You know, I thought about it, and I decided going to do it. At Chris LIS. I created that account so long ago, I only had one show, the Linux Action Show. Chris LIS is Linux it's Action Show. It's a pretty show. good show. I was on Twitter a long time ago is what I'm saying, and yes. you can follow me there. Although, ironically, it's a brand new account, so if you followed me before, you may not be following me now. We split it off. We also created at Jupiter Signal. That's my old account, because I mostly only tweeted about JB stuff. Now, if you want to follow my personal account, which sometimes has JB stuff and sometimes who knows what it has, at Chris LAS. Like the newness sit over there, follow us at unfiltered.reddit.com for contents, feedback, all that stuff, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, and stay tuned because you know what? What? The overtime's coming up. Woo! Maybe we'll talk about Prince. Maybe we won't. Oh. I mean... You just have to stay tuned because overtime in a little bit. There's probably some things coming up. It's see, you know what? It looks like a little purple rain out there. Oh, a little purple rain out there, huh? Yeah. Huh. Well, you know what, Mr. Nudis? Yeah. I'm going to see you right back here next, next week. week. Show episode 185. Overtime begins right now. Here we go! (laughs) 
Special shout out to our new unfiltered patrons this week Chuck, Michael, Virgil, Aaron, Emil, Evangel, that's a good one, and Nate. A couple of you signed up to Patreon for the first time to become supporters of the Unfiltered Show. I really appreciate that. This overtime segment is dedicated to you. This is the overtime where we go into extra detail, additional information about some of the clips we covered earlier in the show. There was a cyber story that I didn't really cover at the beginning of the show because, well, I, it, it's not a real serious clip. They, they can't be serious with this clip. You know, if I was going to have John McAfee on the show to comment on a cyber story, I'm not, I'm not sure how I would introduce John McAfee. Think about it. It's a hard question. Because if you have him on your show as an expert witness, you don't want to make him sound like a lunatic because you're using him... As an expert. So you must introduce him in a way that gives him some air of authority without covering the fact that he's a total crackpot. And only, only our friends at Russia Today could have pulled this off just so brilliantly. Hello, welcome to Sophie & Co. Me, Sophie Shevardnadze. Tech companies are growing more defined in the debate over user privacy, refusing to provide governments access to customers' devices and online communications. But by denying the government surveillance powers, are we becoming vulnerable? Are we allowing terrorism to spread uncontrolled? To discuss this and more, we're joined by cybersecurity legend John McAfee. There you go, cybersecurity legend. That's how you do it. As we become more dependent on computers in every aspect of life, from personal entertainment to global systems everyone relies on, and porn. society becomes exposed to digital dangers, vulnerable to malicious hacking attacks, Your dick unprotected against a potential cyber war. Is computer warfare the future of conflict? Is law enforcement ready to adapt to the new digital threat? And how much real-life damage can a cyber attack inflict? Or is it all hype? Oh, John McAfee, cybersecurity expert extraordinaire. Oh, inv- extraordinaire. <laughs> Enter entrepreneur, creator of McAfee Antivirus. Welcome uh-huh. to the show yeah. once again. It's really great yeah. to have you yeah. with us. Yeah. So, John, the recent Apple FBI battle over uh-huh. unlocking the encrypted iPhone of the San Bernardino <sighs> shooter has ended when the FBI said it was able to access the phone's data with the help from a third party. Should the FBI have access to the information stored on that phone? The Absolutely. Phone of, a terrorist? of course. Of course. Of course. Well, it's not a matter of should they have it. I mean, sure. I guess if it's suspected in a crime, uh, the question is not should they have access to it. It's should they require Apple to give them access in a manner that gives them access to all other telephones. Wait a minute. That sounds completely reasonable. And that's basically what the FBI was asking. But that's all interrelated. Um, do you believe the FBI did, in fact, get access to the phone, or did it just say it did to save face? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. They did. They did get access. There's no question. And they, they had the ability no to get access all, uh, all along. Well, there you go. Uh, the, the way they got access was through uh, a device uh, built by an Israeli company called Celebrite. Not true. Not true. Not actually true. John McAfee, expert witness on Russia Today. Uh, not actually true. Uh, not to... Not to 
make the extraordinary John McAfee look misinformed. But we already know that's not the case. terrorism segment in this week's episode a little short a little tight and the one thing you might have expected us to cover is that boots on the ground order from obama well we're going to get to that right now special shout out as we start our live stream for those of you watching in real time hello youtube live it's good to be here if you're listening and watching on YouTube Live and want to participate in the chat room, go over to jblive.tv where we have our official chat room embedded or irc.geekshed.net. Pound Jupiter Broadcasting. Now, on to that story that you probably thought we would have covered early in the show, but honestly, who didn't see this one coming? President Obama confirmed this morning that he will send an additional 250 American troops to Syria. They will work with opposition forces trying to defeat ISIS. The president delivered the news in Hanover, Germany, while visiting a major industrial trade fair. One group of militias fighting ISIS in Syria says they are happy to get more troops, but they need more weapons, too. Margaret Brennan is traveling with the president. She's in Erzsen, Germany, near Hanover. Margaret, good morning. Oh, hi. Hey there. Good morning. Well, the president's decision expands the American military presence inside of Syria, something he has been very reluctant to do. But this is an attempt to squeeze ISIS hard before he leaves office. The additional U.S. troops will intensify pressure on ISIS inside their stronghold of Syria. I've approved the deployment of up to 250 additional U.S. personnel in Syria, including special forces, to keep up this momentum. Oh, okay. They're not going to be leading the fight on the ground, Uh but they will be essential in providing the training and assisting local forces they continue to drive ISIL back. The 250 special forces expands the U.S. presence from 50 commandos to 300 inside Syria. They'll provide intelligence, support, and logistics to Kurdish and Arab forces who are fighting to recapture Raqqa, the de facto capital of the Islamic State. The White House insists that these U.S. forces will not be in combat, but admits they will be in harm's way. The announcement comes just days after the president deployed another 200 advisors to help fight ISIS in Iraq. European allies still reeling from recent terror attacks have urged the U.S. to do more, specifically create a military-protected safe zone inside Syria to stem the flood of refugees. But the president said yesterday that would require a large number of ground troops, a commitment he's still unwilling to make. It is very difficult uh, to see how it would uh, how it would operate, short of us essentially uh, being willing to militarily take over a big chunk of that country. Now, the decision to send more troops comes as the president's attempt to broker a ceasefire in Syria has collapsed. Gail, he blamed Russia and the Assad regime for that failure, which has complicated his efforts to end the war. All right, Margaret Brennan reporting from Germany. We thank you. Oh, of course. It's Assad's fault. Of course. 
Of course. <laughs> now, uh, you heard it there. 200-ish troops to Iraq. 250 troops to Syria. That sounds like boots on the ground to me. Does it sound like boots on the ground to you? Because I distinctly remember Obama saying, no boots on the ground. There's a confusion in Washington over the U.S. president's order to send in those extra 250 troops to Syria. Barack Obama had repeatedly pledged to avoid putting boots on the ground previously, although according to the State Department, that's not the case. Um, and there was never this, you know... Don't adjust your uh, picture at home. This clip has just got some really weird encoding. My apologies for that. Uh, if you know of a setting in VLC to make that better, let me know in the chat room. But yeah, don't adjust if you're watching on the video feed. Don't adjust your monitors at home. Uh, they just look like creepy, crazy skeletons with this encoding. I know it's weird. There was never this no boots on the ground. I don't know where this keeps coming from. I will not put American boots on the ground in Syria. Oh. We should not be drawn once more into a long and costly ground war. It will not involve American combat troops fighting on foreign soil. The resolution we've submitted today does not call for the deployment of U.S. ground combat forces to Iraq or Syria. Putting boots on the ground, I think, uh, would be a profound mistake. So our Washington correspondent went along to the latest State Department briefing to try to get an explanation as to what those American boots will do on the ground in Syria. Apparently, State Department's John Kirby has never heard President Obama say no boots on the ground in Syria. The collective reaction at the briefing was, really? Um, I'm just curious if this is like part of some kind of devious grand strategy to say one thing and then do the complete opposite of it. I, I just I don't see it that way. For months and months and months, the, the uh, mantra from the president and the, everyone else in the administration has been no boots on the ground. And no, now that is not true. What? It's just not true, man. It is. <laughs> it's just not true. It's true. No, it's not. Mr. All Kirby, Mr. Kirby, Mr. Kirby. Except boots on the ground. That was the. That was the. I never said that. So if John Kirby didn't say it himself, does it mean the U.S. never said it? It got a bit awkward. When we pressed him on President Obama saying that there would be no U.S. ground troops in Syria, then he said special forces are not ground troops, even though they are on the ground. Can the president send any number of special forces without calling them ground troops? They are not ground troops <laughs> in, the, in the sense that they are not conventional ground troops conducting combat operations on their own. They only do that when they get shot at or their buddies get shot at. Special forces being sent to Syria are going to be engaged in combat. You know, and think about this. And I know I've, I've actually mentioned this once before in the show, but, the, but because of the game of politics that they're playing here, not calling them conventional soldiers, there's all these rules that these guys and gals over there have to follow. And one of them is they basically have to be – they have to have their lives at risk, already threatened, before they're allowed to engage. Uh, simply because, of course, they're there. They're, of course, they're wearing boots. They're armed. They have guns. They're showing people how to use guns. They are protecting areas. They are acting as security. They are acting as a supplemental forces. They just don't get to shoot until their lives are already put at risk. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And it's all for a game of politics. We are putting actual human being lives at risk over there. We are sending young men and women, young women and men over there and then telling them you have to be shot at first before you can Defend yourself so that way back home we can say, well, it's not really what we're doing. Their job would be in keeping with the original 50, which was advise and assist. 
But in Iraq, too, you said they were not going to be in combat, and then a serviceman died in a hostage rescue no. operation. Once again, once and, again. And he clearly was in combat. Once How again, can you say you that they're o- not in combat? Once again, you're oversimplifying what we're saying. I mean, there's no point in arguing the boots-on-the-ground rhetoric. I, I, it's, it's absolutely no point. In it. I'm not disputing the fact that we have troops on the ground and they're wearing boots. It would actually be nice to get some simple answers, but we didn't. We learned that there are different kinds of boots on the ground, that there are different kinds of combat that yep. they can be engaged in. Although previously we heard President Obama say U.S. troops would not be there in combat role. When Mr. Kirby said what the Obama administration rules out is a large-scale ground operation, I asked how many troops a large-scale ground operation would involve. And he said he would not put a number to that definition. <laughs> really comes down to the what the definition of is is isis is trying to come to the u.s through mexico an american man accused of trying to join isis telling investigators the brutal terror group wants to open routes from syria to the u.s that goes straight through mexico fox news correspondent brian yenis is here to talk about it brian so what can you tell us this is very disturbing report because so much discussion is going on in the press and the news these days about open borders and the direct threat that it relates to national security is that like her way of saying trump is that what she's saying? Good evening, Kimberly. That's exactly right. You know, 21-year-old Guled Ali Omar, prosecutors say that he tried, he had conversations with his accomplices and other people here about trying to enter Syria through Mexico by crossing the border. Then he intended to tell ISIS how exactly he did, he did that so that ISIS could then use that exact same route to get into the United States through Mexico and bring in a, a fighters to potentially mount attacks in the United States. Now, he is one of four accomplices who was arrested a year ago to the day in, in to this month in Minnesota for conspiring to really provide material aid or support uh-huh. to ISIS. This was a big time investigation in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a 10 month investigation. Ten people were arrested for conspiring to provide material to mm-hmm. ISIS. Five of those people fled guilty. These four are fighting it in court and the trial is on May 9th. One of those men actually is believed to have made it into Syria. Now, in terms of the, the wiretap conversations and the informant, they have these guys talking about wanting to kill an FBI agent. They have them talking about wanting to use homemade rockets to shoot mm-hmm. down civilian airlines. And at one point, it's not only the fact that they have these conversations about wanting to enter through the Mexican border, but it's also the intent. Some of these men were caught in airports in mm-hmm. San Diego, one caught by the FBI on a plane boarding in New York, intending to head to Syria. So it's not just somebody who's just saying these things, yeah. prosecutors say. They're clearly trying. They're not theorizing on it. They're actually actively pursuing this. So, you know, really the question is, you know, how serious is the threat on the border right now? Homeland Security, the U.S. government, Mexico will tell you there's no hard evidence of ISIS or foreign terrorist organizations on the border. Oh. It's just not there. They'll tell you that there are more Middle Eastern immigrants that are trying to enter the country. We've seen the uptick between 2006 and 2011. We've seen about 1,900 Middle Eastern immigrants or more have been trying to come in. Recently, we saw um, eight Syrians try to cross from Texas. They were cleared. But the bottom line is, is that while there is no real hard evidence, they look at what's happening in Europe. They look at Hamas and how they went into Israel using tunnels. We know that cartels are using tunnels. Oh, there it is. If you ever see those stories about tunnels in the news, you ever wonder if maybe they're just building towards something? I mean, who knows, right? But maybe there's a reason they keep covering stories about those great tunnels. Other than it's a great story. 
Mr. Sweet Lou, congratulations, says he's going to be running uh, a 5K run. That's impressive. Respect! All right, if this thing crashes on me, I am switching out how VLC renders video to try to fix some of those uh, compression errors you're seeing. <laughs> Doing it live. So something that's going on in the 2016 race, Trump did it uh, today in his foreign policy speech. Uh, John Bolton, for example, on Fox News says it all the time. This administration is offending our friends like never before. And of course, they're referring to Netanyahu, Israel. They're referring to Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And it always seems like a bunch of hot air because it seems like those guys are kind of due for a little bit of a wrist slapping, put lightly, right? And then, actually, you know, I started to review these next clips and I thought, it is kind of interesting how badly the relations have degraded with some of our closest allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel. And uh, here's a clip of Joe Biden just sort of publicly ragging on Israel. And I firmly believe... Oh boy, that's what the the open GL output did. Oh boy. ...over the past several years... The steady and systematic expansion of settlements, the legalization of outposts, land seizures, they're moving us, and more importantly, they're moving Israel in the wrong direction. They're moving us toward a one-state reality, and that reality is dangerous. Now, that's kind of a big deal for him to be saying that on a stage like that. So we have an overwhelming obligation, notwithstanding our sometimes overwhelming frustration. With the Israeli government. Interesting. Interesting for him to say that. That's kind of a big deal for the vice president to say that. With the Israeli government. Hmm. Let me back that up just a little more. Notwithstanding our sometimes overwhelming frustration. Sometimes overwhelming frustration. Overwhelming. With the Israeli government. We have an obligation to push them as hard as we can toward what they know in their gut is the only ultimate solution, a two-state solution, at the same time be a guarantor, an absolute guarantor of their security. I thank you for all that you do. I thank you for your willingness to speak up. I thank you for your willingness to challenge orthodoxy because the present course Israel is on. Wow is not one that's most likely to secure this long-term existence as a Jewish democratic state. Wow! Wow! Oh, Jeremy, you can find clips of Joe Biden saying he's, he's like the biggest fan of Israel ever. That's a huge shift. Barack's attack dog! Switching back my rendering. That was bad. Wow. 
<laughs> All right, so there's uh, there's Israel. Now here's a little uh, little Saudi Arabia coverage. President Obama right now is on his way to Saudi Arabia for what could be some uncomfortable or even difficult talks with leaders of the kingdom. Correspondent Kevin Cork is live in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia tonight, where it is one o'clock in the morning, Wednesday morning there. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Brett, good evening to you. The long list of topics to be covered by the president over the next couple of days here in the Saudi Kingdom continues to grow tonight. There's no question he will talk at length about the increased cooperation between the U.S. and our Saudi partners, also other Gulf Cooperation Council members, and certainly the topic of ISIS in Syria will be among the most important topics discussed here. However, it's the yet-to-be-released 28 pages of the congressional 9-11 report and the suggestion by some that the Saudi government may have borne responsibility in the attacks that's making things very difficult as the president makes his way here now for his part the commander-in-chief hasn't made it clear yet if he's actually read the 28 pages in particular though he says he is generally aware of what is in them still he says the u.s. has to be careful with any release of this material and the process brett has to be orderly what can end up happening is if you just dump a whole bunch of stuff out there that nobody knows exactly how credible it is, was it verified or not, it could end up creating but problems. But the point is, it's been a long time. Yeah, it has. It's been a long time. That I will acknowledge, and hopefully uh, that this process will uh, come to a head fairly soon. A couple of moving parts also to report tonight. Brett, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham has made it clear he will place on hold legislation that would find foreign governments responsible and even economically liable if they were found responsible for sponsoring terror acts. This, as House Speaker Paul Ryan has expressed some skepticism about the bill, he's saying it could jeopardize an important relationship here with a key ally. Now, as you also know, and this oh, is important, the President, Brett, has made it clear that he would veto any such legislation were it to make its way to his desk. Brett? Kevin Cork, live Wednesday morning in Riyadh. Kevin. Wednesday morning. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Hmm. Now, this next clip's a little dry. But have you noticed the freaking, well, I don't know about where you're at, but where I'm at, the freaking price of gas is going up. It's another small announcement. Nevertheless, it shows a stress within the royalty family. That's that announcement being that the Saudis are cutting back on their oil production, something that they said they wouldn't be doing. I, I think the key for Saudi Arabia is diversification. And Mohammed's They've been trying uh, to do that Salman, for 40 years. He's being more aggressive than we've ever seen him before. Um, they've talked about looking at the non-oil income, which is running around $10 billion per year right now, taking it up to $100 billion. That would take that um, dependence of oil from 80% to much lower levels going forward. So I think this just reflects the need for the diversification and underscores the importance of the focus on privatization of some of the key industries within inside Saudi Arabia. But, Jeff, this takes time. Our editor-in-chief, John McElthwaite, had a great interview with the deputy crime prince of Saudi Arabia about 10 days ago, and he was saying exactly that. They are diversifying. They're actually uh, targeting $100 billion of revenue outside oil. They're creating a fund. But from now until then, they have to continue pumping uh, because otherwise their outlook is, is going to get even worse. Well, I, I think it goes to the, to the key point there that the world has shifted because of shale. You cannot run 
a cartel in the current environment with the flatness of that supply curve or the fast cycle nature of shale. So what that uh, points to is that low-cost players like Saudi Arabia need to go to capacity and grow capacity going forward. And that's really been the stated goal of not only Saudi Arabia, but most of the low-cost players. In other words, the U.S. shale market and others is producing enough oil that they have to remain extremely competitive by dumping oil on the market. Saudi Arabia, that is. Within the region. So we would argue that growth through volumes is going to be key as opposed to thinking about price levels going forward. Um, Richard, of course, Saudi Arabia is crucial for the Middle East. It's crucial when you look at oil prices. But this is a radical shift for a country that's built on petrodollars when oil uh, was first found in Saudi Arabia about eight decades ago. Is this a systemic risk if they don't do it right? I think it's a risk, but I think it also gives an indication of perhaps the future for a lot of similar uh, sovereign uh, wealth funds. You know, Norway's been a pioneer uh, in this and reprofiling away towards a more diversified global portfolio and perhaps more realistic expectations for income, I think is going to be a factor in, in global markets. And- All right, I'll save you from there. I'll tell you where I'm at. Freaking oil. Or gas, really. Getting is super expensive again. Well, super expensive being like 240. It's pretty common around here right now. Okay, did you have enough time between now and our 2016 coverage? Can we do a little more 2016? I didn't get enough Bernie in the last segment. Well, we did talk about Bernie, but I didn't get enough Bernie in, uh, you know, full burn effect. Now, you may remember a clip I'm about to play. I'm, I, you already, you've already seen a bit of it. I want to show you what came afterwards. See, this is why you listen to the overtime right here. So you've heard this part. At that part. time, 40% of my supporters said they would not support him. So from the time I withdrew until the time I nominated him, I nominated him at the convention in Denver. I spent an enormous amount of time convincing my supporters to support him. And I'm happy to say the vast majority did. That is what I think one does. That is certainly what I did. And I hope that uh, we will see the same this year. That's, of course, as we've mentioned, Hillary Clinton saying, come on now. Come on. I got in line back in 2008. And thanks to me, Barack, all my superdelegates switched over to Barack. It's such a great, beautiful statement. It's so beautiful, right? Because not only is it saying, not only is it saying the reason the superdelegates switched over from me to Barack, we're on the first name basis now is because I told them to. But it's also at the same time saying, I got in line and now it's Bernie's time too. I said, it's just such a gorgeous, wonderful politician, beautifully stated statement. It's one of the, it's one of the things that only Hillary Clinton is truly good at crafting at these days. She's, she screws up in, in so many different ways when she's like in that debate clip. In the debate clip earlier, she screws up. She just doesn't deliver it right. But every now and then, they come up with these pre-crafted statements that are so elegant, like that one. I just, I have to stop and appreciate it again. That was Hillary Clinton at last night's MSNBC town hall, speaking about how, in 2008, she worked hard to convince her supporters to support then-Senator Barack Obama. Joining us from Philadelphia, Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. I guess we'll start right there, Senator, uh, because a lot of people, especially in the Clinton campaign, say that you're hurting the party and you're hurting her chances of uh, going into the nomination. <laughs> I'm hurting the party. Well, because it was just the stuff. I'm hurting the party. You know, how can you say anyone? I mean, I don't even I, I think you could even argue Trump is not hurting the party because they are bringing new people in. 
isn't that good? They take the people like me who have been completely disenfranchised are being replaced by two people that are being energized by these candidates. That came out from Harvard yesterday, which suggests that the Sanders campaign is turning around millions of young people, uh, getting them to be more progressive, in fact, getting them into the Democratic Party. Uh, so I don't think we're hurting the party. I think a vigorous debate on the important issues facing the American people is not only exactly what democracy is supposed to be about. At the end of the day, it creates more political interest. It drives up voter turnout. And when voter turnout is high, progressives and Democrats win elections. Well, you can't so let argue. me be very clear. Let, go you, ahead. I'm sorry. You, no, it's all right. You can't argue, though, that you're... I mean, if she is close to clinching this, if there is no path for you, then you're just hurting her as on the road to the nomination and she goes into it more damaged, maybe some would argue. Well, first of all, first of all, I do not accept that there is no path for us. You know, let's okay. not count our chickens before they are hatched. There are five contests today. The state of California, last I heard, the largest state in the United States of America has not yet cast a ballot. I think all of the people of this country have a right to participate to determine who the Democratic nominee will be and what the agenda will be. And I think it will be very healthy for democracy and the Democratic Party when we have the debate, the platform debates, the policy debates at the convention. Should the United States of America join every other major country and guarantee health care to all people through a Medicare for All program? Should we provide paid family and medical leave? Should we address the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality? Uh, should we deal with the fact that we have more people in I jail? I can't believe than they're not cutting me country? off right A now. A lot of good debates to take place. So and if I do not win the nomination, trust me, I will do everything I can to make sure that some Republican does not end up in the White House. But there you go. That's really what they wanted to know. How important is it to you, win or lose, uh, to reshape? the Democratic Party as you move forward through the convention and make sure it's not the Democratic Party of Hillary Clinton's. So this is uh, kind of what I've always read booked would happen is we go from uh, and you see this. I mean, those of us who have been through a few of these, I, I don't mean to sound like an old man, because really, you just have to be maybe in your 30s or 40s and up. And you've been through this a few times where you have your Ross Perot's, you have your 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 far candidate. They don't make it right. They don't make it. But they've changed the dialogue. They've changed the race. They've made these issues matter and they've brought these issues into the light. And maybe they can't be a candidate. But now the the heavyweight candidate has to deal with these issues. And that's always, always what I, where I've said the Bernie campaign is going to have to go. And that is exactly what this question is implying. That is beginning that narrative right now. End up in the White House. But how important is it to you, win or lose, uh, to reshape the Democratic Party as you move forward through the convention and make sure it's not the Democratic Party of Hillary Clinton's past, which we saw in the New York Times magazine this weekend uh, painted her very vividly as a hawk, as an interventionist. And as you have said, as somebody that who is, has closer ties to Wall Street than probably the two Republican candidates. Look, Joe, I am really very proud uh, that our campaign has brought so much energy uh, into the political process, uh, not just young people, but working people. And the issue that you raise is a very important issue. Look, we know that sometimes our military has got to be involved in a war. 
Uh, but I think there are a lot of Democrats out there who are concerned that Secretary Clinton voted for the war in Iraq, was active in the overthrow of the Gaddafi government in Libya. Is, is Hillary, is Hillary Clinton a much. hawk? Because we were talking to, uh, talking to a New York Times uh, reporter yesterday and having a hard time getting her to admit what her own paper wrote over the weekend. Do you believe that Hillary Clinton is a war hawk? Let me just say this. Uh, my views on foreign policy are different than Secretary Clinton's. I helped lead the opposition to the war in Iraq. I think that force, military force, is the last resort, not the first resort. And I think my views are a lot closer to President Obama's uh, than they are to Hillary Clinton's. But do you think she's a hawk? Or is, she, is, she an, is she an interventionist? I don't want to. You know, I don't want to. What about an interventionist? Because it really, it really matters uh, to people in the Democratic Party. It does matter, especially after uh, eight years of Bush and Cheney, and then uh, the tripling of troops in Afghanistan, and all the things that Hillary Clinton uh, proposed while she was Secretary of State. It does matter uh, to a lot of Democrats on whether they're going to nominate someone who's an interventionist. Do you believe she's an interventionist? She absolutely is. No, that's right. I, I think, look, again, I don't want to characterize her, but... It is... I, uh, okay, see, now, okay. <laughs> see, this is the thing I don't understand about the Sanders campaign right here. Why doesn't he want it? Why doesn't he? Why can't he? He probably should. He probably... I think our views on foreign policy are different. I think what we have got to understand... Is their views, their views are different. Their views are different. They have fundamentally different views on foreign policy. They have, I mean, hugely different views. He is very much, I mean, he won't admit to it on air, but he's very much somebody who says, take care of our problems at home. Let's not worry about what's going on over there unless we really had to. He, he's not somebody who thinks we should be out there going into Libya and overthrowing Gaddafi. That's not, that's not Bernie. That's Hillary. No, it's so, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed Yes, yes we came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. <laughs> you know, I just noticed something, too. She's lost quite a bit of weight since that clip. She's, uh, she really has lost quite a bit of weight. That's just no specific comment there, but I just thought I would mention that it does seem like she's lost quite a bit of weight. Uh, so uh, also, one more quick one on the Sanders stuff before we go too much further off Sanders. There have been some claims of uh, foul play, y'all. You might be familiar with uh, campaign financing, a uh, common issue. Well, Shepard is here with the judge to talk about some campaign financing shenanigans from the Clinton campaign. Bernie Sanders is now accusing the Clinton campaign of apparently breaking the law. The Sanders team claims Clinton officials paid some staffers with money the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee raised together. That, Sanders says, violates campaign finance law. Of course, the Vermont senator has long said the DNC is in the tank for Clinton. But Secretary Clinton reps say that Sanders is just trying to help his own fundraising efforts. They call his accusations irresponsible and misleading. So it's not just uh, – I will have a link in the show notes. The Victory Fund for Hillary or something to that to – I haven't forgotten that because it was a couple of weeks ago pre-Linux Fest and everything's a blur uh, – where uh, we specifically talk about – they specifically talk about in that article how Hillary Clinton is, play, is paying off the superdelegates either by paying off governors near them or – think it's, it's fascinating. And some of that money is being funneled through the DNC via the Clintons. It is a big deal, and it's how she's bought off all those superdelegates. And we will have a link in the show. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
in the show notes. I have new pedals in the studio that uh, allow me to uh, uh, turn things on and off. Like, check this out. A little behind-the-scenes thing since I just did it here. So, see, I'm playing music, right? Right there. Watch. I can, with a step of my foot, I can turn that off right there. And then I, with, I, I watch this, like I'm driving a Tesla race car, I remove my foot off the pedal, boom, and myself, oh, boom, pedals, pedals, y'all. Noah comes into town and we have pedals uh, and they allow me to control things, which is really neat because now we have a combination of physical switches and a digital mixer. Anyways, I've gone way off into the nerd realm. I go back now to Shep. Here, let me, uh, since I've totally gone off and now distracting you from what he's saying, I'll back up just a little bit. He's about to bring in the judge. efforts. They call his accusations irresponsible and misleading. The judges here, our senior judicial analyst, Judge Who Andrew Napolitano. They're claiming that she may have broken some, that her campaign may have broken some laws. Is this dubious? Well, it, it strikes me as dubious because if they had hard evidence that uh, Mrs. Clinton's people did what Senator Sanders' people says they did, the commingling of funds between regulated money, what she has raised as a Hillary Clinton for president candidate, and unregulated money, what the DNC has raised or what super PACs have raised. Bitcoin. If there's evidence of that commingling, I would think they would have presented it to the Federal Election Commission. Let's just talk hypothetically. If there is evidence of that, the Federal Election Commission will jump on it immediately. But they didn't even file with the FEC. They had, as of this moment, they apparently have not filed. So they just start chattering about it on the day of the most important, well, I mean, everything's and, the and most important. And, of course, important, uh, it, uh, that helps Bernie Sanders or whoever makes an allegation like this either raise money or get out the votes, which is what the Clinton people have accused them of doing this for. But he has a problem in this state. He can't get out the votes because most of his get-out-the-vote campaign is about people who were independent or switching over, didn't belong in the process before, and it's too late here. Because you had to sign up in October. Correct. They didn't switch. Uh, they didn't switch in time. So, so if there's a next step for this, it would be a filing with the FEC, and we've not had that. Right. Then the FEC will decide is this administrative, in which case they'll assess a fine against a campaign. In, in this hypothetical, Mrs. Clinton's campaign. So just a fine, and I, I think this is a clear point to stop right here and say this is the important thing. It's just a fine. It's not really a big deal. If they decide it's beyond administrative, they'll now here. Of course, it will never go that far. Send it to the Justice Department, which then is in the business of indicting individuals, not never a campaign, happen. but human beings. Nope. That's uh, rare, but it does happen. It uh -huh. happened as recently as uh, four years ago with Ron Paul's campaign. But of course, Ron if Paul. you really think something like that. Ron Paul, Ron Paul. Yeah, of course they did it to Ron Paul. They want to screw Ron Paul. This did not, you, think the, you think the machine's going to go after the dog like that? Come on. That your initial point was... You file with the Federal Election Correct. Elections Commission. Correct. And they haven't done that. So it's just chatter. Uh, Unless and until there's something else, this is noise, nothing else. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Well, that's kind uh, of annoying. And, and the FEC <laughs> yeah, is, is probably saying, you know, we're here, we're here. We, we, Come on. We exist hey, to investigate these things. We'll be hey, on it immediately if okay. you send us a complaint. They've, you know, they're good at investigating her. There's plenty of investigations going on all yes. over the house. Yes. Mm. yes but not, not here because they didn't file. Correct. Correct. Chatter. Correct. Did you vote? Did no, you I vote? I voted. No, I'm happy to answer. You I live vote, in New Jersey. I vote in New Jersey. Uh -huh. And we may be relevant for the first time in my memory, because New Jersey is the same day as California, June 7th. Yeah. It's the last primary day in the country. Okay. All right. Thanks, Judge. 
If Mr. Chase were here, he would say, show me the money, of course. Show me the money! And uh, there is a lot of money. You could say an obscene amount of money in the presidential race. Well, let me start with what uh, George Clooney said. He, he agreed. This fundraiser, which benefits a big chunk of the DNC, obscene. Do you agree with him? Absolutely. We, we agree as a party that there is an obscene amount of money in politics. And that's why our members, I'm a co-sponsor along with... Who's she? Oh, she's the DNC chair. Many of my colleagues uh, of a constitutional amendment that would overturn Citizen, Citizens United. We need to make sure that we can keep elections that like we did with changing congressional, congressional districting and re- redistricting across the country, that voters can choose their representatives and that we don't have outside undue influence come in and swoop in and, uh, and make decisions on behalf of uh, the majority of voters. What a joke. 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 This woman is pure, raw evil. The party that there is an obscene amount of money in politics. Debbie Wasserman Schultz. You are raw evil. Raw evil. <laughs> okay, so where do I start? And that's why our members, I'm a co-sponsor, along with many of my colleagues, uh, of a constitutional amendment that would overturn Citizens United. Okay, so Citizens United is the big enemy, and she's co-sponsoring a bill to overturn Citizens United. Chank, over on on, uh, the Young Turks, would tell you, join the Wolf Pack, because Citizens United, or whatever his thing is, Citizens United is the big evil. Let's, Let's just pretend like that is the big evil. And you know what? I'll even give you this. Before the 2016 race, I would have agreed with you. That was the big evil. But the reality is, I mean, just the way I see it, Bernie Sanders is proof positive that Citizens United does not prevent someone from making a substantial impact. Oh, Donald Trump. Is he using Citizens United to get as far? He's leading the Republican Party right now. Where Citizen Uni- Citizens United with Donald Trump? In fact, the only candidate that seems to be benefiting would be Hillary Clinton, their candidate. The undue influence is this corrupt superdelegate system. That's the corrupt influence. That's what's preventing the people's candidate from being elected. Her very superdelegate system. We need to make sure that we can keep elections that, like we did with changing congressional, congressional districting and redistricting across the country, that voters can choose their representatives. Voters can choose. Well, their superdelegate system, their very superdelegate system prevents that, okay? That's the super irony of what she's talking about. Her very system in place that she defends in previous clips we've played on this show is what's preventing that. I'm not saying I like Citizens United, but let's be real about what's preventing the voters. And that we don't have 
outside undue influence. Like superdelegates, like elites in the party that don't listen to the people's request, that might be considered outside influence, too. Come in and swoop in and uh, and make decisions. You know, like sit there and wait while all these primaries go on and let everybody run around like a bunch of animals during primaries and they sit back with their pledge to Hillary Clinton and swoop in and change the vote like that? On behalf of uh, the majority of voters. Hey, NBC. Oh, hey, NBC fans. Yeah. Oh, I'm a fan. Oh, look at that guy. Look at that. Oh, I'm so fired up about that. I cannot stand that lady. Yeah. Hey, it's our song. It's our song. Uh, I got to calm down. I got to calm down. I'm sure Chuck understands. I'm sure he was thinking the same thing as he did the interview. Now, this next story. (laughs) Producer Matt thinks that clip should be in the main show, but uh, you know what? No, this is for the uh, this is for the, the hardcores, the people that are listening. Did you guys hear the story about the uh, Koch brothers saying that Clinton might be a better GOP nominee? We're going to get out of the... uh, Actually, I got... No. Okay. We're going to play this clip, and I got a couple more, and then we'll get out of 2016. I don't want to overwhelm you with too much 2016, but I do have a few more things to play. A surprising bit of support for Hillary Clinton this weekend from conservative billionaire and political donor Charles Koch telling ABC that Clinton may be best suited for the presidency. Uh, not one of the three Republican cur- Republicans currently running. Let's take a listen. So is it possible another Clinton could be better than a, another Republican <laughs> the next possible. time around? It's possible. You couldn't see yourself supporting Hillary Clinton, could you? Well, uh, the, her, her, we would have to believe her actions would be quite different than her rhetoric. Let me put it that way. All right, let's talk to uh, Maria Cardona uh, here with us, uh, Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator. Maria, thank you for being with us. So uh, what do you make of these comments? Do they do they help (laughs) Hillary Clinton? Do they possibly hurt her with her base? (laughs) I don't think they really matter. I did a double take, as I'm sure so many people did when they heard this. Look, I'll never say this ever. But I agree with him. Absolutely. She will be the best choice uh, on either side uh, in terms of being the next president of the United States. Wow. But it very well could have been that he said it because he thinks maybe it will hurt her with her base or going into the general election. But the fact of the matter is, is that she's focused on, number one, uh, ensuring to continue to earn every vote to get the Democratic nomination and then if she's so lucky as to get the Democratic nomination, to focus on the prize, Hmm. which is in November. And this is what I think uh, um, a lot of Republicans are worried about, that she is such a strong contender. And look, his comments actually speak volumes, much much less about her, much more about the lack of real good candidates on the Republican side. There you go. I, I'm I'm so almost done with the. Uh, I just let, well, maybe we'll come back to it. I, I need to take a break. I need to take a break from from 2016. I just oh, do you, do you do you feel like the way I do? Like you just reach a point, and you're like oh, I can't take it anymore. It's so obnoxious. It's so much crap. <sighs> just gotta take a step back. Let's take a step back and um, let's admire the media admiring itself. This is really something. When when you're the, when you're in the mainstream media and they give you an interview with the vice president 
this is a controlled thing. They they're not just they're not just saying yeah yeah here you can ask you can ask Joe anything you want. You're going to talk about very specific things with Joe, and uh, Joe's there to talk about one specific thing. And in, in, in this clip, this goes back to when Joe was perhaps going to run for president. Remember, his son on his deathbed told him to do it. And the question was, is Joe going to run? And Nora, from your CBS Morning Show, interviewed him. And now, she's winning prizes. Is it that you think you couldn't win or that you didn't want to run? I couldn't win. I'll be very blunt. If I thought we could have uh, put together the campaign that, uh, that our supporters deserved and our contributors deserved, I, I would have gone ahead and done it. This morning, we celebrate our very own Nora O'Donnell. Charlie Rose is being honored for that revealing conversation with Vice President Joe Biden and his wife, Jill. Keep the applause going. Our 60 Minutes interview earned the Merriman Smith Award from the White House Correspondents Association. The judges called it insightful regarding the vice president's announcement announcement that he would not seek the presidency. That's high praise, isn't it? Very high praise and well-deserved. The award will be given out Saturday at the Correspondents' Dinner. So you get to see her at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah, the last of the president's Obama's term. But what was so great, we remember when you got it, Nora, because it was like three days after he decided, and then can you are you are you growl, are you gripping with the amount of circle jerk? I mean, are you totally are you following this? This is so freaking meta. This is the CBS News reporting about the CBS show getting a re- award about one of their CBS hosts. I, this is melting my head right now. You had it 60 yeah, minutes. Right. But listen to this, Charlie. There's an official press release, and it says, please take a moment to congratulate Nora. So when you see Nora on the street, give her a big hug. <laughs> she loves hugs. And, and congrats, and, Nora. And, no, 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 that. Call her up and tell her how much you love her. Congrats. Oh, I just, I, I, I love her. Just, I just love her. The chat room says it's the music that really made it. I kind of agree with them, actually. <laughs> All right, so I want to play a clip for you. We haven't talked about the TPP in a while. And uh, as promised, Obama is out and about promoting the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And in, there's like there's like, there's several different versions of it. There's an investment version. It's There's like a different, a- different acronyms. Obama doesn't get caught up in that part. That's not what Barry cares about. Oh, I'm sorry, Barack. No, no. What, what, what Barack cares about is how it's going to be good for workers. It's going to be better for workers. So we'll play that next for you.
President Obama acknowledged in our interview international trade deals have hurt some American workers. Still, he hopes an agreement with Europe will be finalized before he leaves office. But the transatlantic trade and investment partnership faces critics here and abroad. We spoke Monday in Germany where the president tried to rally support. Not every trade agreement in the past has been good for workers. There has been offshoring seeking uh, primarily low wages or low environmental standards and companies can profit and then sell back those goods uh, irrespective of what that's done to the communities that they've left. Uh, And so there are legitimate concerns about how globalization has proceeded. My argument, and uh, I think this is hard to dispute, is that uh, the only way to change this system is to engage it, not to withdraw from it. Part of our job is not to dismiss concerns about globalization. They are real and they are legitimate. It is to argue how do we make globalization, which is not going to be reversed anytime soon, work for ordinary people. How do we make sure that it's working for uh, communities uh, all across America or here in Europe? And that is something uh, uh, I'm convinced we can do, but uh, you know, we've got to get the facts out. We're in Germany. Yeah. Um, your favorite, as you have said, your favorite global leader who's been with you yeah. longest. Yeah. What is it about you and Angela Merkel? And what is it about her that makes you believe that she represents the kind of leadership you need in Europe? I think that uh, I have an affinity for her. And, and, and like, I like to think she has an affinity for me because uh, we're both pretty rational. Uh, we both an, try to analyze a problem and, 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 and solve it based on uh, facts and reason and common sense. You know, she believes in free markets. She believes in liberalism. She believes in democracy. She believes in a free press. She believes in uh, pluralism. And she's willing to make moral decisions when it may not be in her political interest. That's exactly right. Now, she's a good politician, otherwise she wouldn't be here that long. But if you look at what she's doing right now with respect to the refugee crisis, uh, she's making an argument to the German people that, look, we're prospering now because people invested in us in a Marshall Plan and helped us during reunification. Uh, how are you coming together on dealing with migration? Well, and refugees. What I've said to them is that this is not just a European problem. This is our problem, too, uh, for two reasons. One is that if you have uh, a flood of refugees uh, and it's disorderly, then uh, you know, these are folks who potentially, if not handled properly, could end up being uh, an alienated population inside of Europe. Uh, that uh, is not assimilated, is not integrated, and will be resentful, and that could have an impact in terms of their willingness to engage us and help us on things like counterterrorism. But more importantly, more strategically, is the strain it's putting on Europe's politics, the way that it advances uh, far-right nationalism, uh, the degree to which it is encouraging uh, a breakup of European unity that in some cases is being exploited by somebody like Mr. Putin who says, forget about Europe, look at sort of reasserting uh, the, the nationalist 
greatness uh, and, and uh, anti-Muslim uh, uh, sentiments. His goal is to divide Europe. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, the, Mr. Putin has generally viewed NATO, EU, uh, transatlantic unity uh, as a I'm threat to... I'm off laughing, this is what I'll say. <laughs> Russian power. Now, I think he's mistaken about that. I've indicated to him that, um, in fact, a strong unified Europe, working with a strong outward-looking Russia that is defining its greatness, not on the basis of military, but rather on the basis of uh, its ability to harness the talents of its people uh, for uh, uh, economic good, that that's uh, the right recipe. So far, he has not been entirely persuaded. Mm. Yeah, quick point. Uh, and with respect to uh, Merkel, you know, she wins and she wins. And some reporter said to him, would you rather that system rather than be term limited to two terms? Mm-hmm. And he said, actually, no. He said, I think it's really healthy for us that you have uh, using a, a term that we have fresh feet coming in all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our own system. Really great conversation with the president. He did such a good job. He had a really great chance to play in Bowdoin. All that was really good. It was a good job. Speaking of Russia. The Kremlin has announced it will spend $200,000 this year on preserving Vladimir Lenin's embalmed corpse. The former leader's body has been on public display in Moscow's Red Square since 1924. Here's a picture of him. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a skeleton. <laughs> he looks no. he a handsome man. Right. Actually, here he is. This is the real yeah, picture of his body. Recent polls show that many Russians would prefer to have him buried, with some complaining that Lenin himself would have opposed being treated as an idol. What do you think, Rob? What do you think? Well, first of all, I don't think Lenin had any problem being treated like an idol. He was, that's what he kind of liked. Yeah, he kind of liked you know, it's a really good business. Like, I was, when I was in, uh, I was in Hanoi years and years ago, and, and Ho Chi Minh, who's also embalmed like that, he was, uh, they said, oh, there's a big sign saying, Ho Chi Minh has been sent back to Moscow for repairs. <laughs> because they had this business where they would do it. Like, yeah. I think they should open it up to more people. Like, can you imagine, like, just look at that picture. One of the real housewives, any of the real housewives, would benefit from whatever they're doing to live. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Aww. they were looking so. Much- yeah, why is Fox discussing this? Much better. Well, it really is plastic. I mean, they they have. Uh, I think his ears are made of uh, uh, some type of clay or po- polymer or something like that. Wax. They're doing all sorts of things. So it's not just embalming. Kate, uh, I think it's a bit gruesome having a dead body there. Don't oh, I think it's hot. No, um, I don't. <laughs> Uh, I just think it's crazy how much even we spend on things like funerals. We spend so much money on people after they've died, and yeah. then we're not taking care of the living as well as we should be. So uh, I'm like, when I die, chuck them out back. I, you know, but when I die, dig a hole, put me in, give me to science. I don't care, and take the money and give it to a homeless person. That's how I feel. That's well, really nice. It does wow. seem nice. But what do you do, Joanne, for the three days before you put them in the hole? Uh, they're going to start to. They're not going to. They're going to start to. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you drink enough, though, you don't. You don't smell any. Um, I am fascinated with the dead, and I think that's what people see, you know? It's like, when's the last time you saw a 500-year-old body? Probably never. Well, you might this never is, in this see building, once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's just so cool. It's Honestly, cool. This just... doesn't happen. Uh, okay. Was that a joke about Rupert Baker? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is a big. Uh, it's a big tourist thing. There's lines. There's still lines tourists, to see yeah. why. 
I've strolled past uh, Lennon actually several times, and he look he does look good. Uh, here's what I think. When we talk about like poking the monkey or whatever you have, I didn't talk. I didn't say, no. um, there was something like that. But anyway, what we should do is, you know, how they steal college mascots. You know, I think we should, if we want to really poke a oh, bear yeah. Yeah. and bother Putin, Jeez. we should we should do an op, get in there, and steal Lennon's body, like it's a, like it's a prank. Could you, you know, imagine we'll if they said that about say Lincoln's body? Like if we did that for Lincoln, could you imagine? <laughs> It's just incredible. All right, so that ridiculousness has has prepared me to talk a little bit more about 2016, uh, and we got to talk about Clinton's email servers. You know, Fox loves to talk about it, so let's. If Fox is talking about it, well, then everybody must be talking about it. Perhaps the biggest danger to a possible Clinton presidency is not Bernie Sanders or the eventual Republican nominee. It could be the investigation into her email scandal. Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Harridge has new information tonight on one avenue we have not explored so far. Good evening, Catherine. Well, thank you, Brett. A senior House lawmaker tells Fox News there's no question the intelligence community is doing damage assessments after more than 2,100 Clinton emails were identified containing classified information, including intelligence beyond top secret. I can assure you the intelligence community is working on determining uh, the scope of any breaches that may have resulted from the improper handling of classified information and the damage assessments that go with them. And I think we all understand uh, that we had classified information in channels that weren't secure on Secretary Clinton's homebrew server and that risk was associated with that. Federal regulations require damage assessments after classified information is outside secure government channels, such as a personal server. The goal is to determine whether sources or methods were compromised. Asked whether the State Department is doing a damage assessment, a spokesman said today that 22 top-secret emails too sensitive to publicly release are still in dispute. There are reviews and investigations that are ongoing looking at that, and we want to make sure that those reviewers and those investigators are able to do their job cleanly without interference from us. Meantime, the chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee said Sunday the FBI investigation of Clinton's emails would come to nothing, but conceded Mrs. Clinton's use of a private server exclusively for government business was not the same as previous secretaries of state who occasionally used personal email accounts. She was doing something and using private email in the same way that previous secretaries of state have done. Uh, wait, 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 no, that's not according true. According to the policy I mean, no, that she no, Nobody allowed. says that's true. Uh, nobody, other than the private, no, other no, than the nobody, private server. Well, right. The security branch at the National Archives said they could not comment because the Justice Department is involved. Brett. Captain, thank you. You're Some new information now in the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Fox News is confirming the intelligence community is conducting a wide-ranging investigation into how much damage might have been done to national security by Mrs. Clinton's use of her personal email server. All of this amid Mrs. Clinton's claims that she did nothing wrong. Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Herridge is live in Washington with those details. Catherine. Well, thank you, John. A senior House lawmaker confirms to Fox News that the U.S. intelligence community is conducting damage assessments after 21 Clinton emails were identified, 2,100 rather, Clinton emails were identified as having classified information in addition to another 22 at the top secret level. This is believed to be the first time that these intelligence community reviews have been publicly acknowledged. 
I can assure you the intelligence community is working on determining uh, the scope of any breaches that may have resulted from the improper handling of classified information and the damage assessments that go with them. I think we all understand uh, that we had classified information in channels that weren't secure on Secretary Clinton's homebrew server and that risk was associated with that. Under these federal regulations, when classified information is lost, compromised, or outside secure government networks, a damage assessment is required. The regulations read in part, quote, agency heads shall establish appropriate procedures to conduct an inquiry investigation of a lost possible compromise or unauthorized disclosure of classified information in order to implement appropriate corrective actions to ascertain the degree of damage to national security. On Fox News Sunday, the chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee said the FBI investigation would come to nothing, but conceded Mrs. Clinton's use of a private server was not the same as previous secretaries of state who occasionally used a personal email account. She was doing something and using private email in the same way that previous secretaries of state have, uh, you, have wait, done. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, that's not according true. to the policy I mean, no, that she no, was Nobody to. says that's true. Uh, nobody, other than the private, no, other no, than the nobody, private server. Well, right, the, other the than the private server is a big deal, and nobody had uh, 30,000 work. <laughs> Her faces are so great on that. <laughs> I'll leave you to replay that, but that's, that's so great. That was so good. It was worth seeing again. So there you go. There you go. And then one more, uh, just a follow-up on Trump's foreign policy speech. This is something we covered earlier. It's a clip you didn't get to see before. Let's get quick reaction from all of our analysts and our reporters. Fareed Zakaria, you listened very carefully. He spoke for almost 40 minutes. Uh, what did you think? I thought in the main theme, he really st- uh, stuck to his guns, which was, it was populist, nationalist, protectionist. You know, as I, I will look after America first. Uh, the trade deals were at the center of it. That was all familiar. The, the, when he expanded, it was sort of rambling to the point of being incoherent. I mean, he, he, you know, he contradicted himself several times. It struck me. Well, there. He said, well, there, we're going to get out of together. nation building, but we are going to create stability. Well, how do you do that? You get out of nation building in Afghanistan, you'll get more instability. You got out of nation building in Iraq, you got more instability. He said, the allies can rely on us, but we will be completely unpredictable. He said, we will spend what it takes to rebuild the military, but we're going to pay down the debt. Um, we're going to spread Western civilization, but we're not going to spread democracy. And he ended with a truly bizarre uh, statement about the greatest problem in the world is that we have too many weapons. And once again, a, a strange place where you might find that he and Bernie Sanders uh, are one. So I thought that when he tried to flesh out an actual foreign policy, uh, it was pretty incoherent. He was very strong on his protectionism, anti-trade, uh, American unilateralism. He was very strong on attacking the, uh, the Obama-Clinton uh, legacy. And as you say, really, that's mostly the Bush legacy when he talks about the trillions of dollars spent trying to nation-build in the Middle East. That's the Iraq war. That's the Afghanistan war, both of which were initiated by President Bush. Um, so I, I, I don't know that it's going to convince anyone. Certainly didn't strike me as a, uh, a careful analytic laying out of a Trump hmm. foreign policy. That seems to be a different take than the, uh, than the Fox News pundits. I'm going to take a second here and try to fix my encoding settings. It's just a mess. It's a mess. I don't, I don't know what to tell you guys. I don't know if it's uh, the videos themselves. I've experimented with different types of... Uh, Video output, trying to fix it. 
You know, I might try off accelerated playback. I'm going to just as an experiment here, live on the show. Let's do it live, guys. Let's play that same clip back without hardware acceleration turned on. Now it's real bad already. I can already tell it's bad. Let's get quick reaction. Yeah, that didn't. <laughs> That's what Wolf looks like. <laughs> Why not? Let's keep experimenting. One more try. This time I'm doing uh, something crazy. Now it already looks bad. Look at it, it already looks so bad. Let's get quick reaction from all. <laughs> it's different, different outputs too. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting result what you get. Who would have known? Who would have known? Oh, I tell you what, VLC. All right, one more. I mean, now just you know what? I'm going to automatic mode. I'm going into full automatic mode. Let's see what happens. So let's get quick reaction from all of our analysts. <laughs> it's no good. Very carefully. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. Look at <laughs> oh, it's like uh, I don't know. I don't know. Now, what's here's what's weird, right? If I play that same clip, watch. I could open it up here, and let's say I want to play an MPV. Same exact clip. No issue. So let's get quick reaction from all of our analysts and our reporter, Fareed Zakaria. You listened very carefully. He spoke for almost 40 minutes. No problem. Now you tell me how that... What's going on there, VLC? What's going on there, VLC? I'll have to figure that out. I'll have to figure it out. Tell you what. You guys heard about the solar-powered plane, I'm sure. Um, but... I guess before we get totally off... Let's uh, let's cover this one. Uh, Trump, Trump had a little gaff, little gaff. I think what I want to do. What's that, Trump? What do you want to do? You, did you hear about this? Yeah, a little bit of a gaff. He uh, he went to make sort of like a a nine eleven reference, but uh, well, is I want to talk just for a second. I wrote this out. And it's very close to my heart because I was down there and I watch our police and our firemen down on 7-Eleven, down at the World Trade Center right after it came down. And I saw the greatest people I've ever seen in action. I saw the bravest people I've ever seen, including the construction workers, including every person down there. Did you catch it? Did you hear it? It goes by really quick. Our police and our firemen down on 7-Eleven, down oh, the world. Oh, 7-Eleven? Oops, that's kind of embarrassing. The worst 9-11 reference yet. Yeah, he said 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah, he had Slurpees on the mind. <laughs> oh, Trump. What are you doing, bro? Oh, man. Anyways, I just don't know what's going on with that v- that that VLC, guys. I'll tell you what. But Trump doesn't know what's going on with these uh, 9-11 references, so there's that. Putin wants to know what's going on with his damn space program. Putin has rebuked Russian space industry officials after a launch of a Soyuz rocket from the country's newly built Cosmodrome and take place as planned. Our correspondent Murad Gaziev reports from the Cosmodrome. 
There were four errors uh, that were revealed by the uh, automatic system in charge of the launch. Uh, two were to do with uh, the weather and two were to do with a faulty gyroscope. Uh, apparently, uh, he wasn't all too happy about that. In my opinion, this is due to negligence and lack of control over these simple but important processes. And if that's the case, certain conclusions have to be drawn. The president accepted that when you're dealing with new technology and the Soyuz 2.1A launcher is relatively new and uh, it's launching for the first time from this uh, Vostochny Cosmodrome, new itself, uh, that there will be setbacks, there will be difficulties. Uh, these are, you know, rockets after all. But when uh, a gyroscope malfunctions, well, it's a simple piece. It could have been tested. Uh, the error could have been predicted. It's not rocket science. And President Putin says uh, new investigations, criminal investigations, have been opened uh, together with uh, six additional criminal investigations that are ongoing. We had to start six legal cases. Four people were arrested. Two of them are under house arrest. But if they are found guilty, they will have to swap their warm beds for prison cells. There's no doubt about that. Vladimir Putin actually sat through a uh, post attempted launch hearing where the uh, staff, the officials from the Russian Space Agency explained what had gone wrong. Uh, he was there unofficially. He said he just wanted uh, a better picture of how these things uh, how these things are handled, how these reports are made. And uh, he warned the staff present that uh, he would be back here again. It's very ominous. They will be back there. I will check in on you, and heads will rule! I feel like the 2016 race is, uh, it's actually getting to be sort of consolidated. It's actually consolidating up and about to get interesting. So we should end the supporter show with a classy moment since we last visited each other. 2016 will go down as one of the biggest clown show elections ever. I mean, how could it get, I mean, oh, I'm sure it will. It can only go up from here, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, Trump actually makes a pretty good uh, stand-up comedian. I, I gotta give it to Marco. Marco, I think, had the best one-liners. Now you look at Kasich. But Trump, every now and then, he really knows how to deliver a one-liner. And, uh, <laughs> well, here he was, uh, talking about Kasich, which uh, made me laugh. We'll, we'll, end the, we'll end the supporter show on this note. I don't think he knows what, you know, did you see him? He has a news conference all the time when he's eating. I have never seen... A human being eat in such a disgusting fashion. <laughs> I'm always telling my young son, Baron, I'm saying, and I always with my kids, all of them, I'd say, children, small little bites, small. 
This guy takes a pancake and he's shoving it in his mouth. He's like, it's disgusting. Do you want that for your president? I- <laughs> that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is our ending note. For the overtime. <laughs> Thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash unfilter. Oh, you guys are what make this show possible. We really appreciate that. Stay tuned for further developments in the community. Super excited about all of that. Check the calendar for future live shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And don't forget, if you're a supporter, $5 or more, check that sink. Lots of more clips. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>